0: Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's the podcast dedicated to life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swaim.
1: Aha! I caught you <laughs> by bursting into this room. But before I get to that, let's record a podcast episode.
0: <laughs> Have you ever seen There's a Comedy no. Pilot that David Lynch did called no. On the Air? No. It's nuts but there's there's one like recurring joke where a guy bursts into a room and says aha i've caught you with another man and like it's oh. always yeah. I
1: thought it, I reminded you because I did the David Lynch voice. Aha. Uh-huh. Today <laughs> on YouTube, we're going to make a baked z- zucchini squash.
0: Have you ever he does like Is our guest David Lynch? Oh, oh man, his
1: YouTube channel is amazing he cuz he'll room? just like make a casserole and it's still somehow creepy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would be. Yeah. yeah. Or like there he used to do the David Lynch weather report where he would just upload well where i am it's cloudy today oh that's so (laughs) weird amazing
0: (laughs) he's the best he's the best this is uh this is an episode about kurt vonnegut the playwright Mm -hmm. how about that oh you thought he was a novelist here he goes in a whole nother medium and format and isn't that amazing
1: me thinks the play is the thing we're in to do some (laughs) (laughs) Vonneguting.
0: hey let me ask
1: (laughs) you Do you spell playwright like you write a play, or like you are a, a, a wheelwright or a wainwright?
0: The second one, like, yeah. a, like a craftsman,
1: right? Because it's classier. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It feels very right, like they're building it in shirt sleeves. And oh, like, good.
1: Okay, we won't have to argue like about Smithy. that. Yeah. We agree about everything except the pronunciation of particular words. That's good yeah. to know. <laughs> no, a, yeah.
0: Also, I pronounce it pleeroot. <laughs>
1: You mangled that so much, I forgot what we're discussing. <laughs> oh, yeah, playwriting. Okay, I got you.
0: Yeah, and this episode is about mainly Happy Birthday, Wanda June, which mm-hmm. is a play Kurt wrote in uh, 1970, and then also two shorter plays called Fortitude and The Very First Christmas Morning. But let's get mm-hmm. into all of them with a segment called Plot Time. Tickety-tock, it's the time of the clock. It's the reading the plot,
1: the plot time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no
0: <laughs> sorry i was i was flipping knocks on my computer and it came off as if i was like very not into oh well yeah intro. i mean we
1: practiced the thirds and the fifths i thought you were gonna come in with the harmonies but if you're just gonna leave me out there to dry that's your prerogative man so i'm, <gasps> I'm a just great the co-host host, dude yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway now that i've dropped all of the balls mm-hmm. let's get into the plays. Plot uh, time
1: wanda June or plot time all at once. All three.
0: <laughs> what <laughs> right. order do you want to do this in? Like we're just unstuck in time.
1: Well we could easy, do... we could go from the biggest, most complex one down to the one that doesn't matter. Yeah, or I, think vice that, versa. I think let's do that. Okay, yeah, let's cool, start with yeah. Wanda
0: June. This is it's also probably the one well known play by Kurt Monaghan, right. if there is one. It initially started out as a shorter and different play he wrote called Penelope in uh nineteen sixty and then it was expanded after he was, you know, a better known writer. And he expanded it and wrote it in nineteen rewrote it in nineteen seventy as Happy Birthday Wanted June. And then it was performed off Broadway and even on Broadway. What a thing. Wow. You know? The Great White Way.
1: And I'll say my edition, very telling, if you haven't read it and don't know the themes of the book, the cover is just pure black with Satan's pitchfork reaching up from the underworld. That's the cover.
0: And like poking the title. Poking like the title. Like tormenting yeah. Yeah. it. Tormenting Wanda. Like it's a cartoon butt, mm-hmm. you know, like just pitchfork straight into it.
1: Yeah. And that's the play. Basically, the <laughs> devil punishes this little girl for her sins for all eternity. Now, and uh, I thought it was interesting. I actually said the original is called Penelope because it was originally based on the idea of When he read The Odyssey as a young man, he just found it unfathomably cruel, especially to Penelope. And that so resonated with me made me so happy. Because when I read The Odyssey in high school, do you remember the part (laughs) where they sacrifice a brood of Snow White sows? It's like a throwaway line in the book because that's what you did at that time in that culture was like, oh, and they found a white sow and they slit her throat and all over kids' throats. And that and then Poseidon brought the winds and then they could go to the next island. So I just wrote an epic poem from the point of view of those sows who were on their own (laughs) odyssey to get home to their family. And then guys come and gather them up and kill them. Oh, that's amazing. So I was like, wow, I did the exact same thought where it's just like looking at an ancient culture and all you come away with is – Man, history was mean. It was hard <laughs> to live in like 1000 AD. That was a tough time.
0: Yeah. I'm weird. It's my first consumption of the Odyssey was there was a TV miniseries mm-hmm. starring Armand Sante in yeah. the 1990s. And I thought it was just like a mean show because I was a kid. Because you imagine like, modern writers being oh, okay. like,
1: yeah, he just kills them all right screws their girlfriends then there's this woman which he screws her and he kills her <laughs>
0: <laughs> right yeah well, and, there, and there'd be whole episodes because it's broken up where it'd just be oh let's check in on penelope yep she's still very sad at a loom sad. anyway see you next week endlessly
1: loyal to this dude who <laughs> right. she like saw once and then never saw for 20 years
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and then i got to a class where we read the thing and i was like Oh, it's it's the source. Yeah, it's not a... <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> like, and of course, there's, it's incredible for all the blah blah reasons. <laughs> Inside yeah, into the Historic right. Mind, amazing. Well, the rhymes are good. There's great yeah. lyricality in it. And why are we talking about the Odyssey for so long? Oh, right, because it's based on it. Um, yeah, it's fair. I think <laughs> it's so, yeah. based on that and, and a combination of, he says, basically his interpretation of Ernest Hemingway.
0: So this is also, because Kurt is such a novelist where his intros and prefaces and so on are crucial. I feel like it would be hard to watch this play not getting to read the intro he does for our copies of it, where you really learn a lot about what Mm -hmm. it means and what he's going for, and, and it's really key. But he talks about it in that, that he and his wife at the time, Jane, did a great books course on Cape Cod in the 1950s about the Odyssey, He was like, "Uh, this is a horrible story toward Penelope. And then he just kind of worked from there, and he tried to work it out. And then also he works in how he feels about Ernest Hemingway's life. And then in between writing the first version, Penelope, and this version, Happy Birthday, Wanda, June, Hemingway commits suicide. So then that impacts the play, too. But
1: just the concept that, and I think it is very insightful, of (laughs) Hemingway not even he's not like going into the details of the real man Hemingway who knows about the intricacies of his complex tragic psychology but meaning the type of manly man that Hemingway romanticized and sort of embodied and a lot of people alive at the time thought god he's the James Bond of our era you know that's the coolest way to be a man is to be like Hemingway-esque and piss in the fireplace and have a big beard and shit (laughs) and as you'd expect Kurt Vonnegut's He's Adam Scott if Hemingway is Nick Offerman, so he's like, I don't like that. I, uh, <laughs> I don't like going out and just slaughtering wow. animals and thinking it gives you big balls. Fuck that. I so uh, even connected
0: as a and Rec. That's <laughs> oh great. yeah,
1: but so, yeah, just yeah. Hemingway as Odysseus is great. Yeah. The, the guy that's going to go out and hunt and come back and ho- hope his wife is still waiting, and if there's other suitors, he'll just kill them. <laughs> That'll take care of that.
0: Right, which is especially, it just really doesn't translate to our era at all. Well, yeah, you can't do that.
1: I would have loved Castaway if Act 3 was, Tom Hanks (laughs) just goes John Wick on anyone that ever looked at his wife while he was gone.
0: (laughs) Just tracking down delivery men who came by while he was gone.
1: (laughs) I was just delivering her a package. I just (laughs) took over your route. Oh, I know what you mean by that. (laughs) Bam, 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 bam.
0: (laughs) Most likable man in Hollywood, Tom Hanks. <laughs> and also, like, like, he's an action duo with the volleyball still. So he's like, throw oh, me the gun. Oh, and the yeah. volleyball's just sitting there in the corner. You know? They run out of bullets and Wilson's like,
1: you know what you have to do. He just hurls Wilson across the room, bounces off the heads of eight goons, and they all collapse, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs style that's your movie yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) and that's what wanda june's about no let's get into it (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah.
0: i guess it's sort of a blurb but there's a quote from the intro where he says that the part of hemingway he detested was quote the slayer of nearly extinct animals which meant him no harm so it's like a Mm -hmm. masculinity thing but also just the straight up death murder involved in and i keeps coming up yeah
1: and i don't think it was like anything about like Hemingway's overrated as a writer, or his writing sucks, or it's actually a smear job of Hemingway the man. It's just the things he represented at the time. Yeah, yeah. And he was very particular about it. He really yeah. goes after it.
0: Yeah. And so the play opens with four of the characters all standing and speaking directly to the audience, which is very just direct and really plays to me like most of Kurt's books do where like uh, instead of having a narrator just tell you what it's about and exactly who everyone is since it's a play the characters just do that they just walk out on stage and tell you everything
1: yeah, and actually, uh, The Very First Christmas Morning does the same thing. It has a bit of a better excuse because it's for small children. Right. But I have rarely <laughs> seen a play, I think, other than like Our Town is the only one, or maybe Bye Bye Birdie, yeah. where the characters come out and go, hello, my name is Penelope. I'm in a bad marriage. This is my child, Paul. Paul, say hi to the nice people. I'm Paul. I'm the son character.
0: <laughs> I like that everyone is Richard Third. Everyone is... <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: sort of like <laughs> no those are the actors as themselves then of course they don their character voices which oh, are right. much more normal
0: right, right. <laughs> i'm penelope <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's uh mainly focused around penelope directly talking to the audience and she tells you right away this is a simple-minded play about men who enjoy killing and those who don't uh, later on she says hey this is a tragedy when it's done my face will be as white as the snows of kilimanjaro So, Mm -hmm. boom, Hemingway reference right away. Boom. Africa connection.
1: And then Harold himself, the Hemingway stand-in, the patriarch, absent patriarch, comes in and says, yeah, I'm the guy she's talking about. I've killed many hundreds of men and thousands of animals. I enjoy
0: it. Yeah. Next. (laughs) (laughs) And it it sets up the two sources right away. You've got Harold is Hemingway right away. And then overall, you've got... Literally named Penelope Ryan, his wife, is waiting for him. He's presumed dead because he and his uh, friend Colonel Looseleaf Harper mm-hmm. have been lost in Africa looking for... Or no, lost in the Amazon looking for diamonds for so long. Yep. And then she has a son, Paul. and Paul Ryan. Right, who coincidentally <laughs> is named Paul Ryan. And yeah, I, plays
1: himself in this off-Broadway production. Of, <laughs> no. It's
0: very busy. And so she and her son, Paul, live in New York and she has two suitors around all the time. One is named Herb Shuttle. He is a vacuum cleaner salesman and uh, loves weightlifting and also, like, worships the idea of Harold Ryan. Like, he's Mm -hmm. blown away by the guy, thinks he's the greatest hunter. Also, can I
1: just say, the name Herb (coughs) is to vacuum cleaner salesman as Jeeves is to butler. You're, like, locked in. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) At birth, it's like, well, how do I sell vacuums? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other suitor is named Dr. Norbert Woodley, which also locked in. So set and he is a pacifist and constantly giving people peace signs and yep. uh, d- and they
1: yeah they represent the odyssean suitors there's only two instead of a line out right. the house yeah <laughs> and uh they're Telemachus do you say Telemachus or Telemachus
0: oh Telemachus i think
1: <laughs> great good yeah. we're agreed they're Telemachus as Paul obviously yeah. and much like in the odyssey he's grown up with this outsized fantastical vision of his dad The apartment is completely covered in, like, animal skins to the point where the doorbells make animal noises when you press them, Yeah, which obviously is not Penelope's style, and she hates it. And he's been gone for, like, a decade right, or eight years or something. Eleven years? I don't remember. But the point is he has such a strong, powerful presence. Nothing in the house has been allowed to be changed at all. And his son, like, worships him as a god in his absence, a god that he barely remembers. But just, like, any time his mom says anything that's even, like... A human failing, like he yelled at me at that picnic or whatever. Right. The sun will flip out and be like, Harold Ryan is the greatest man to ever... Yeah. Okay. great. Also, Andrew Ryan being the Ayn Randian antagonist in the Bioshock games.
0: Oh, yeah. That's,
1: I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing there.
0: <laughs> so many Ryans. Yeah. So strange. Popular name. Well, I, And I do, I really think this play does a good job of blowing out that thing that is in the Odyssey where it's so cruel that... When the husband is gone forever, also his son is like cheerleading him to a wife who is already putting up with enough shit, you know?
1: Although I do understand. It's funny, from the time of the Odyssey, if you're the intended audience, which is like a land-owning dude who's rich enough to own a book (laughs) and doesn't (laughs) at this time in culture, probably, unless you happen to be really progressive in your mind, think women or children are like as important as you— Obviously, you're looking at it from Odysseus's point of view and being like, "How sad would it be after you killed ten monsters to get to your wife if there were like other guys hovering around?" Yeah, and it's yeah. like, well, it would be even worse for her. But you don't think about that if you're an ancient Greek, <laughs> like imbibing the Odyssey. That's not the point,
0: right? And yeah, like financially, business is why the whole audience is men. So right, you just right. write towards so you're like, like, yeah, that, yeah would, that would be bullshit. That yeah. would be bullshit. Yeah. yeah, do you know what
1: I did to get back here? <laughs> Which will come up. That's Harold's opinion as well.
0: Right, right.
1: Right. When he comes back, is like, you now owe me the world because I was suffering for 11 years <coughs> while I was gone. Well, okay, mm-hmm. but life goes on. That's not her <laughs> fault. She doesn't owe you anything.
0: Right. Well, and they also, they also set up that when this is happening, it's three months from the time when legally Harold will be dead. Like, he'll be legally declared dead, and officially she'll be a widow. She'll inherit his giant estate. Right.
1: Oh, also, I think it's important to point out that they established real quick that he's rich through inheritance. Yes. So he's the kind of masculine playboy who does all those things that appear rugged, but they're also things only the very wealthy can even do, which is kind of an unmasculine thing about him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not like he's... You know, Al Swearingen in Deadwood, who's like, I goddamn cut all the switches and cleared the land and built this town. He's like... I'm manly because I paid to go in a helicopter and shoot at things. <laughs> and the helicopter crashed and I got captured. But still, you're only there because you're rich. Like It's an yeah. interesting dichotomy.
0: Yeah, at one point he just says, yeah, my parents died and they left me a brewery <laughs> and a baseball team. And, and- other things. Uh, yeah, other <laughs> And stuff. some other things. <laughs> you don't even totally know? Like, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Later when Penelope's going to leave him, he tells her, uh, don't worry, you're not going to starve. My last wife got the baseball team. You'll probably get the brewery. I have some other things.
0: <laughs>
1: Everyone will be fine. It's clearly someone who's lived a life of, oh, money's not even a problem to think about. Who cares? Yeah. Because he's just always had it.
0: Which all, which makes you bulletproof in a way that kind of right. undercuts the, oh, what a brave. Uh-huh. That's great. funny
1: given that at the end he tries to shoot himself in the head ah. and fails.
0: Ah. <laughs> bulletproof. Whoops.
1: Oh, if you don't know spoiler alerts are coming at you, you shouldn't be listening at this point, I'd say.
0: Oh, I just meant my choice of phrasing. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah, also, yeah. yeah. When we, yeah, and he's Hemingway, and, you know, these things yeah. happen. So we... Oh, shit. I, I'm dumb as hell.
1: I just, re, I like, I never even realized he shoots himself in the head like Hemingway did. <laughs> like, obviously, I know Hemingway died that way. I know this kid, yeah. but I separated them enough that I didn't like. Man, that would have been really edgy to stage right after Hemingway really killed himself with a shot to the head. That is crazy.
0: Yeah. Did well, they... The
1: take the play down,
0: like, when that happened? So the way the timeline works, he put up Penelope on Cape Cod. It ran for a week at a theater called the Orleans Arena Theater, and then that was it. Yeah, And that was in 1960. In 1961, Ernest Hemingway dies, but it's reported as some kind of accident. It's not reported as a suicide. They don't tell anybody. And then about five years later, his last wife and widow tells the New York Times that yeah, it was a suicide, and and we all kind of knew, and, and, you know, let's let's not be weird about it. It was a suicide. It was a tragedy. And so that was in 66, and then four years later, they put up this play, Happy Birthday, Wanted June. So I feel like they... So it's they, still
1: kind of too soon, but it wasn't like, okay, yeah. I thought it was running, and then he shot himself, and they're like... Let's keep it going. In fact, let's have the guy shoot himself at the end. Right. Like that's, that's pretty poor taste. That's in pretty poor taste.
0: Yeah, right. That would be. Yeah. Four
1: years later, sure, fine. Fuck him. Yeah, fuck him anyway. He's it's been, been long. Yeah, enough. he's been dead for four years. Screw that guy. Well,
0: dead nine years and then just there renew. You go. You know? Okay, so yeah.
1: Well, I would have run it five years earlier then. <laughs> My rule is if there if the president has changed, you can make jokes about anything previous to that point. <laughs> Try that. See if it works out. Let's in public. zing early 2016. <laughs> Here it comes.
0: Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> so once the characters just sort of very uh, presentationally yeah. describe you cast, themselves, you got your big
1: apartment <clears throat> that all the action's going to take place in.
0: Yeah. You and then you uh, have Penelope and Paul in the apartment. Then both suitors come through Norbert and Herb, and also you find out that today is Harold's birthday. And so Paul is very upset that he's like, why aren't we even celebrating it? And Mm -hmm. I think there's a reason for his frustrated wife and the guys trying to get her not celebrating it. Makes sense to me. But he's very upset about it. And so then uh, he sprints out of the house and Herb says, I'm going to go after him. Don't worry. And then meanwhile, Norbert and Penelope kind of catch up with each other and talk about their plans to, you know, hopefully get married someday. Mm -hmm. And then Herb comes back And says, well, I couldn't catch the kid. He's running through the park, which is probably Central Park at night. But I did get a cake, so that's pretty good. Yeah, he
1: got a birthday (laughs) cake because he also agrees with Paul they should be celebrating Harold's birthday. Because even though he's a suitor who wants to marry the presumed dead guy's wife, he, like Paul, worships... I know we said this, but I don't want to hammer it home. He represents the dude who is not masculine, is a normal dude doing a normal job, but has totally drunk the Kool-Aid and thinks the type of dude that drives uh, Jeeps and shoots lions is the coolest type of dude to be. He's not yeah. that guy, but he would love to be and thinks it's awesome. And uh, whereas Shuttle, as we said, is the peacenik who can very easily articulate why a rich dude shooting a lion in a country that he's not from gives no benefit to anyone Yeah, and and often does say so.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I feel like they're both, it's sort of like that, Star Trek original series episode where like Captain Kirk gets split into two people and neither one's effective as a captain, you know. Yeah, like, but they're both kind of different sides of how to feel about masculinity, and neither of them really functions or works as a person. Yeah,
1: and they both represent not their own thing, but ways to react to what Harold is bringing to the table, energy wise. Right. Like, yeah, you only care about them in so far as, oh, okay, so he's always going to be totally opposed to violence. I wonder how Harold will react to that, or and if Penelope will choose him, therefore symbolically choosing pacifism, <laughs> or if she'll choose the guy who thinks it's cool. So yeah, so Shuttle goes out to chase Paul because he's much more concerned about, like, Paul's right, Harold's great, and he's always trying to like get Paul to like him by complimenting Harold, whereas Woodley's always trying to convince Paul that he should respect mm. his father but doesn't need to lead the same life of violence, and Paul's like, fuck you, yeah, I do, he's, he was great. So, Shuttle comes back with a cake that says, Happy Birthday, Wanda June on it. (laughs) Hence the title. People are like, well, why? And he's like, well, it was a spur of the moment thing. It's night. They weren't going to make a cake. Someone didn't pick up their cake. Right. So, this is whoever, some stranger named Wanda June. It was her birthday. I figure we could scrape the Wanda June off and it'll just say, (laughs) Happy Birthday. That's his plan. Right. (laughs) And then Paul will be happy because he'll see that we love his father. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, but he's not here. You were supposed to get him. And he's like, yeah, but I got a cake. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, okay, I'll fine. track him down. Yeah. I'll oh, does she? Him. Does she go look for him? I think so. I don't maybe. remember some of the details. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing we find out is that Shuttle did briefly glimpse Paul and say, come back, Paul, come back. And uh, Paul's, or uh, Shuttle says, Paul said, why don't you take a flying fuck of the moon and ran into the dark?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just quoting one of Kurt's favorite things as a child. Which is great.
1: Yeah, it's it's clearly, it's his Samuel L. Jackson motherfucker. Like, it's just his favorite curse word, and he's going to use it a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then Penelope runs off to try to find Paul as best she can. And then uh, I think Woodley stays. And then it's just like kind of sleeping in the apartment by himself. And then Harold Ryan returns. It's amazing. He mm-hmm. he he still has a key, so he just comes back in along with his friend, who he was stranded in the Amazon with, Colonel Loose Leaf Harper. Yeah, and he's
1: immediately very imperiously, even though it's been, I think, eleven or thirteen years or something, is like judging whether they did everything right in his absence. Yeah. So he goes around being like, "Oh, good, the boarhead's still there. The doorbell plays the right thing. They didn't change the locks. I approve." And then he sees a <laughs> dude sleeping on the couch and is like this won't do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And starts asking, doesn't reveal who he is, obviously, but wakes this guy up and is like, is the proprietress of this house still Penelope Ryan? And does she still yearn for her missing husband? Like, you know, all the Odysseus type shit being like, you all worshiped me while I was gone, right? Like right. my wife is still just <laughs> waiting for me alone in a dark room, right? Can yeah. we defrost her now? I'm ready for more
0: wife, please. <laughs> and uh and Woodley, he manages to coax out of Woodley that Woodley is a fiance of hers and he's like, "Oh ho ho ho." Right, oh. yeah. But he still doesn't reveal who he is. And then Woodley gets out of there and then right, which is funny
1: cuz Woodley thinks they're burglars. <laughs>
0: Right, <laughs> but is still able
1: to be intimidated into leaving them alone in the apartment. Yeah, because the big guy comes in and is just like, "Well, good talk. You better leave now." And he's like, "Uh, okay, I'll go." You're probably right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and we should talk about Looseleaf. Harold is not alone. He has a humorous
0: sidekick. Yeah, so the two of them were trapped in the Amazon, stranded, and Looseleaf Harper was someone who flew the plane to drop the atomic bomb on Nagasaki in World War II. And so that hangs heavy on him constantly. And then he he is also sort of uh, he also left behind a family in New York mm-hmm. that he needs to go see. So it, so now that Harold and Looseleaf are there, Harold's like, okay, well, Looseleaf, get out of here because uh, you, you can go check on that family. I'll check on this family. We'll just do that. We're finally. And Looseleaf yeah. is like, let's talk about how they invented Playboy magazine while we were gone. Isn't that crazy? Please hang out with me. Just keep hanging yeah. out with me. I miss you. You know. He's
1: like a comical moron. He loves Harold and doesn't want to stop hanging out, even though they've been in the jungle only together for a decade.
2: Yeah.
1: He's just amazed by all the changes that have taken place. Doesn't want to go home in a sitcom fashion. Because <laughs> he's like, my wife Alice is going to tear my ass. Yeah. I'm real late for dinner, man. <laughs> so he's totally like, it's a weird duck He's a sitcom side character for Comic Relief who dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. Right. <laughs> And I think there's definitely intentionality there. He did that, and then the other thing we know he did as a pilot is he's Harold's personal pilot. So he dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki, and he dropped Harold Ryan off on Africa. Right. <laughs> Both very damaging, <laughs> ill-advised flights.
0: Yeah, because especially when Harold's introducing himself or in the play, I think he says that he's killed like 200 people in war right. and many more animals. And yeah. So, oh, okay. So you're. Just you're just uh, wantonly destroying the mm-hmm. entire environment. It's great. So Harold finally gets loose leaf out of his place because then the scene ends with Harold's finally alone in the apartment and he's like, Oh, a cake. Who's Wanda June? Which is like a nice joke. That's, yeah, that's fucked. Yeah. Blackout. Uh, and then blackout, and then straight to the next scene is just a little girl who's Wanda June doing a speech directly to the audience about how she was killed by a drunk driver that day, and now she's in heaven, and heaven's and that's super why her, great.
1: Yeah, that's why her cake wasn't picked up. Yeah,
0: because she was because murdered. she was like, murdered that day. Right before or on her birthday, yeah.
1: Uh, it's She's described as, she is as cute as Shirley Temple. <laughs> that's, that's her across the page, yeah. She's up in heaven. She does another one of Kurt's favorite bits, which is explaining how mundane and boring heaven is.
0: Yeah. But this like, time instead chilled of out, yeah too. just this, like ah oh, yeah we play shuffleboard a lot.
1: Right. This <laughs> time instead, instead of the joke being everyone hangs out on a green felt expanse, it's everyone plays shuffleboard. That's the only activity, but you love it. Yeah. Magically. Like it's Hitler just really plays good. shuffleboard, Einstein plays shuffleboard, it's all fine.
0: And there, and I think there's beer. Like that's it. like there's oh yeah, there's board shuffleboard and beer. And beer. And that's it, <laughs> and it's good. I know. wonder
1: if that's Kurt's idea of a perfect afternoon. Like if that's why that was his heaven. Well, his because like, mine would be like, oh yeah, up in heaven, everyone plays Magic the Gathering cards and eats Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> you know, like everyone's concept of heaven. <laughs> right. We all
0: play Sip Five and have a Diet Dr Pepper. There's uh, your right. man. We
1: gave some great insights to ourselves just now. <laughs>
0: Diet Dr.
1: Pepper. That's pretty good. What about cherry vanilla diet Dr. Pepper? Do anything for you?
0: Uh, uh, vanilla somewhat cherry, not with that. Let me up
1: the game. What about <laughs> caffeine free yeah. diet cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper?
0: No, because the, the right. caffeine free kinds, it's like it, it should just be like an empty can at that okay. point. Like, why, you know?
1: What about Dr. Pepper? <laughs> no. So, yeah, it's a very short interlude. Of them in heaven. And that's also, it. It doesn't tie directly to the plot. Like, they're not going to, she's not going to affect anything. Well, it's an interlude.
0: I do want it with heaven concepts uh, mm-hmm. that Kurt saying of it, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is one time he talks about that he says it came from his uncle alex and his uncle alex would say it like after having a bunch of german food and dark beer and like mm-hmm. sitting back and thinking so i think like that really is his his heaven it's just like a ah, nice meal and then chilling out after ah that'd be yeah great, you know
1: oh and they have other stuff actually they have merry-go-rounds that don't cost anything to ride they have ferris wheels they have little league and girls basketball
0: yeah, it, it's like, it's still very shuffleboard centric right. and it's very like community center. Heaven is like, it's like, like a
1: big New England rec room. Yeah, like a, right. or a, yeah. Like
0: a, a suburban park district yeah, set up exactly. heaven, you know, <laughs> uh, which is great. So then after Wanda June's speech, we get another speech from Loose Leaf. This is just a whole scene of different speeches to the audience. And Loose Leaf talks about when he dropped the bomb on Nagasaki and how he felt about it and talks about going to a town Where he was asked to speak to some Eagle Scouts in church basement, but he was mostly struck by how weird Eagle Scouts are (laughs) because that's like a hard thing to tell. He's easily distracted. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's hard to tell if that's always been his personality or if just his brain kind of broke a little bit after he did that horrible thing. But also, how do you blame him? But also, maybe you do blame him. Anyway, he describes the overall.
1: Yeah, he goes from dropping the bomb to that. Eagle Scouts. He goes from Eagle Scouts to how weird all the different merit badges are. And he goes from that to to earn one of his merit badges when he was a scout. He had to find out what his city did with all the sewage in their town. And he found out that they just dump it directly into the river everyone gets their water from. I love how he seems like he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's just going tangent to tangent to tangent. But it starts with senseless act of destruction of the community and circles back to that as well yeah almost as if he's trying to give an excuse like hey you know people hurt each other all the time i'm not the, but he doesn't even know he's doing that like he's just blithely talking about like in the same sentence he goes also one time i fought a guy while i was wearing roller skates and he was wearing shoes it's really hard don't ever fight a guy wearing (laughs) roller skates (laughs) right Nagasaki,
0: <laughs> which is like just a great mental picture to anyway i dropped the a-bomb but man fighting a guy when i was yeah. in
1: skates. case and he's like yeah
0: my mom used to say
1: you got to chew a banana for a full minute before you swallow for health reasons anyway i'm out <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
0: and then uh, and then the next scene Starts as what seems like it's going to be another speech where it's Harold talking directly to the audience. But then we go into a flashback of when Harold met Penelope. Mm. And it was when Harold went to a burger place and she was a waitress. A roller skate
1: waitress. Yeah. So we have some kind of tie into the last scene i guess <laughs> right
0: and she's 18 and a half she says uh-huh. and he's an older man and he and he just like much older very very possessively is just like you're a woman and just like no you will marry me and that's their whole courtship that's it yeah it's that as creepy
1: it. as can be because he says he calls her daughter right he says like uh well, it's okay, daughter, because I'm here to claim you. Everything will be fine. You're married to me now, daughter. Right. It's like as bizarre as it could be from a modern courtship perspective.
0: Yeah, and I think and intended to be weird back then too, but it weird has back not then too.
1: But it has it even improved. weirder now. And yeah. she's also like, "You're acting really weird. This is weird." And then she's like, "Okay, I'll marry you. <laughs> You're very forceful."
0: Yeah. And also, and the scene ends, is, and the scene ends with whoa. she's like, he's like, "I've been shooting Mau Mau in, oh, in Africa. Christ. And then she's like, "Oh, what's that?" And he says it's black people. He was shooting black people. yeah, Africa he says it's a
1: kind of an animal with black skin. It's a kind of a man. it's called a mao Mau.
0: yeah, and then I've been hunting over for a while. Holy hell,
1: holy shit <laughs> And earlier or like a few lines before she says, he says, Well, like, I'm a multimillionaire, so just quit fucking around. You're going to marry me. Just get in the car. Right. And she goes,
0: I'm engaged. <laughs> right. I'm a person.
1: And he says, But daughter, I love you very much. It's <laughs> just, just that's just so creepy. I
0: don't it's know. Just, yeah, it's, it's awful.
1: <laughs> I want to bone you because you remind me of my daughter. I right. shoot black people. Get in my car. <laughs> This is the guy we're with. De- this is why Satan's pitchfork is the cover of the book.
0: Right, and we're all, and it's like not even that far into the Ooh, play. There's a no. lot of play to go, and you have no, to keep watching this guy. Building his character up, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Then the next scene, we go back, back to the to apartment. The present time, yeah. Uh, Harold Paul comes home finally from yeah, the park. He comes home. Uh, Harold is alone in the apartment, kicking around. Uh, Harold continues to pretend to not be himself and just be like. A guy, so he just is just like, yeah, I'm a friend of your dad's, and then tells. But in order to
1: find out if people think of him the right way, right? Like he's
0: like, it's an odyssey. What tales do you?
1: What stories do you know of your father? Do you? Are you appropriately in awe of him? Yeah, because I've heard amazing things. (laughs) Tell me how great he is. Yeah, it's bizarre.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah,
1: as Odysseus did to Telemachus, I believe, there was a scene where he's like, yeah, and do they still hold me dear in their hearts, the people of Ithaca, or whatever? Right. He's like, yeah, yeah, of course, dad. Like, come on. You know your own dad. He knows yeah, it's him.
0: I figured it out. I'm <laughs> not an idiot.
1: Yeah. Oh, and he pumps Paul for information about, like, what's the deal with these suitors? Paul's like, yeah, she met the doctor in college. And he's like, What? My wife went to college? Oh, what a tragedy. (laughs) Educating a woman is like pouring maple syrup into a fine Swiss watch. It no longer is good for anything. Yeah. Paraphrasing because we're not at Kurt Blurts, but that's his basic response is his biggest disappointment is, ah, she educated herself while I was gone. Probably going to have to divorce this one and give her a baseball stadium.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I was only gone more than a decade.
1: Yeah. You're telling, you're telling me she has a fiancé and a diploma? Unacceptable.
0: <laughs> and then also, one of the stories he he even like prompts Paul to ask him about, it. he's like, ask me, he's like, okay, tell me about it, is uh, when he fought Siegfried von Königswald, the beast of Yugoslavia in mm-hmm. World War II, who is a, a made-up Nazi from World War II. But he talks about that. And then we go to Siegfried von Konigswald in heaven doing yes. a monologue.
1: Although, I, yeah, I want to just real quick characterize it, yeah. is Paul tells him how his own stories of how great he is, and he's very pleased. So he gets into it, and he seems to have a moment of, I love this kid. I'm so glad I'm bonding with my son. I'm going to mold him to be like me. He seems excited. Because yeah. like Paul says, tell me stories about dad. And he goes like, dad, huh? Yeah dad like he's gonna he's gonna embrace this role so he goes like well I'll tell you kid I'll tell you some a story you probably never heard about your dad because only I knew because I was there you know what he did there was this famous Nazi and he just snuck up behind him like a animal and he slid his goddamn throat and just let the blood pour down and Paul's like that's a horrible story. <laughs> he just slit his throat. Was he sad about it? And he's like, no, let me tell you about this other guy. He poisoned him. And he like laughed while the guy just clutched at his stomach and died and frothed at the mouth. Yeah. And he's like, that's awful. And he's like, what do you mean? I thought you were proud of all the people your dad killed. So like you see Paul being confronted with, did you not understand the details? I'm saying I kill people. I stab them in the eye. Right. I shoot them in the stomach. And now Paul is starting to realize, like, oh, it's very unsavory. Also, like the details are not pleasant. So it sort of ends on that note of him being like, oh, well, maybe this kid isn't my spitting image. It's kind of awkward. And then it cuts to heaven again.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they don't quite hit it off, which is great for future scenes where I feel like there are some fun, just awkward beats written in. Yeah. It. like It, it depends on performance a lot, but there's some like dumb hugs and stuff that are great. Uh, and then, yeah, that next scene is Siegfried von Konigswald doing another monologue about heaven and just talking about how, yeah, Wanda June's cool. I don't know. I like Shuffleboard. Uh, it's a good hang, you know? <laughs> just like, Yeah, and uh, von
1: Konigswald, you know, identifies himself as, yes, it is I, von Konigswald, the very same Nazi he just described slitting the throat of. Yeah. I hang out with Wanda June up in heaven now. Yeah. Because we have this Harold Ryan connection, which is funny because Wanda June's only connection is that he stole her cake. But (laughs) so, like, in heaven, there's a club of people who have been harmed by Harold Ryan in life, including his first wife whose life he ruined, a man whose throat he slit, and a little girl whose birthday cake he stole inadvertently. (laughs) They all have
0: an axe to grind with
1: Harold Ryan. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Actually, I hadn't thought of it. That's a caress. I hadn't thought of it that way. Oh, yeah. They're
1: they're caress centered around the fact that he's a huge dick. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I like that Wanda June's only claim to know him is very mild. It's like, well, your head was already crushed by a track. Is it that bad that he took your birthday cake?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's and also Conniewald uh, has a story about killing a an allied guy with orange juice which uh, then Harold Ryan took revenge for. And he describes it as, yeah, and then I said we were just following orders. And then I realized like, yeah, I'm saying that about killing a guy with orange juice. Yeah, silly? the like, scene that's ends weird. with
1: him saying... Uh... When they had to question me in court, I realized I had to say something very weird, which is, hey, I was only following orders as a good soldier. Hitler told me to kill this guy with orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, and then I did. So, I guess right. I'm culpable. But,
0: yeah. And Hitler's it, the weirdo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh,
1: <laughs> And, of course, the classic Vonnegut cycle of everyone has hurt everyone. Where does the blame end, right? Right. He slit this Nazi's throat, which makes you be like, man, that's a rough way to go. Then you find out the Nazi, of course, is a Nazi, so he's done equally horrible things. Everyone kind of sucks. It's hard to sift out, like, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Oh, and what's great is in that heaven scene, he literally is retelling the story of having his own throat get slit. Because the way Harold told it is like an action movie. Basically, I went in, I killed all his bodyguards. He's sleeping upstairs. And then I said, in perfect, flawless German, a cool James Bond line, which is like, I believe you've been expecting me. I'm first Corporal Hellard Reiner and I'm about to slit your throat or whatever. He just says something badass in perfect German, he says, in perfect German. Yeah. And then Von Konigswald tells the story of his throat getting slit and he's like, I woke up, I heard some ruckus, I went downstairs, there was this like flushed, oafish-looking American saying some like nonsense I couldn't understand and then he stabbed me in the throat. Like his German was so crappy that the guy he killed did not know what he was saying. Right. That cool action line did not matter or affect anything. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, yeah, and then he said something in German and I was like, what? And then he stabbed me in the throat.
0: (laughs) I also whenever I'm reading a play part of me a little bit wonders like oh what if this was a movie instead or something that's like the one bit of this i wish was a movie where like we could see him doing his like have a i'm oof, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you're dead like yeah. you know like just see the terrible german happen with a voiceover or something this should be a play though i think i think it works definitely, better, definitely. yeah 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 and then we go back to the apartment from there yep paul is uh, still talking to harold then penelope and herb come back and then it's gradually revealed to everyone. Penelope realizes, but also Harold just tells other people that, oh, this is Harold. He's back. And Herb Shuttle is immediately like, well, we had a good time, Penelope. See ya. I yeah. I'm yeah. way too worshipful of this guy. Yeah, He's alive goodbye i'm out
1: right i'm no longer (laughs) suiting you but i will hang out and be buddies with harold ryan if he'll have me like he immediately tries to like nudge his elbow at harold (laughs) ryan and be like you want to play cards sometime or anything did you notice how i like gave your wife right back (laughs) you just asked once i gave her right back can we be friends i'm (laughs) probably
0: pretty cool right and he's also
1: like yeah and fuck woodley i hate that guy too he's such a nerd tell me about (laughs) all the lions you shot i love it right Oh, and Penelope announces that she's gonna marry Woodley. That they that she's in she's yeah. like, Well, I wasn't even engaged to Shuttle, he's just hanging around. I'm engaged to this peacenick doctor. I'm announcing that now. We've right. set a date and shit. And Paul the son immediately says, Well, I'm gonna kill myself. So <laughs> <laughs> unacceptable. And Harold says, Well, I'm gonna kill the doctor right. and take you back in the way that you'd expect Hemingway to do.
0: <laughs> and it's right, it's all very it's in keeping with his overall vibe, which also, obviously, we're reading this in text as a play, but this is happening in a room in an apartment that is covered in animal heads on the wall. That he killed. And, yeah. So, he's not and,
1: he's not bluffing. Yeah.
0: yeah. And once in a while, he like, chin chucks one and says, how you been? When he gets back, you know, which is <laughs> right. not a bad joke. But, and also, there's also an earlier joke that I like where... They just point out that, like, Paul's like, I love Harold. He's the best. And Woodley's like, yeah, how's that cough you have going? How's that, like, fungus under your thumb going? And he's like, oh, it's fine. It's whatever. It's like, like, clearly these animal heads are all giving them diseases.
1: Right, because they carry. They're filthy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really funny touch to me. Yeah. Just everyone's very sick from the animal heads. Right.
1: So then Woodley comes back. He was out on a doctor's appointment, which is why he didn't come back at the same time as they were out on a date. But Penelope comes back alone. He comes back having just helped a police officer deliver a baby in a taxi cab. So literally helping people and bringing life into the world. Right. Walks into the room and Harold's like, I'm going to take your life out of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Very emblematic of their two management styles.
0: Yeah, so we it builds to the end of Act 1, okay, yeah, where sorry, Penelope is just too burned out on dealing with Harold being back, Harold insisting that he's just going to take her back now, and just, like, he's, I, I love it. He said defrost, like, just, well, <laughs> yeah. here we go. And she says, nope, I'm just going to bed, tomorrow's a new day, forget it, I can't deal with this.
1: Yeah, um, it ends with basically Penelope finally standing up and saying, look, you're not going to murder me, I know you're not, I'm not going to get married to you, bye, I'm going to bed. I hope when I wake up, there are fewer people in the apartment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then, so then act two starts with the next morning. And uh, well, but,
1: and of course, Harold's very vindictively like, fuck you. It's my money. It's my apartment. Yeah. And you're my wife. I own you. Right. But she shuts the door and locks it and he doesn't break it down. So it seems like it ends for now. But Harold obviously is like, well, I'm not leaving. It's my goddamn apartment. And he just stays in the living room, hanging out, waiting for her to come out, presumably.
0: Yeah. Like, this state of affairs can continue for a little while, is his opinion. Like, "Ah, all right, I'll give you a night, I guess. But, like, uh, come on.
1: So he hangs out. uh, Looseleaf comes over to hang out with him. And Shuttle comes back to hang out with him because he likes him so much. (laughs) So they sit around playing cards and telling Shuttle stories of Africa and the diamond hunt. And basically, Harold's main motivation is... To raise his boy right Like he's just being real fatherly yeah. Like the most emblematic moment to me was Paul goes like he passed the ketchup And he goes that's not what you say boy You say pass the fucking ketchup <laughs> Or he says that to Shuttle but So both of them But he's throwing out like to Paul and Shuttle This is how you live This is what a man is yeah. You're pathetic You sell vacuum cleaners Pathetic
0: Yeah <laughs> and, and also this is going on Harold is clearly ill to an extent At one point, somebody says to him, Shouldn't you lie down? And he says, When I'm dead or fucking, which is like a (laughs) good gag for him. But, and then he, he, they're like, Oh, what are you going to do for your health? And he says, Well, there's this root from the jungle I chew, so I'll be fine. Oh, also, and I love,
1: and he makes a big deal, fucking deal about, It's one of the many benefits I brought back from my explorations. Outside of the native tribesmen, no Western person's aware of this fabulous root, but I've been chewing it for years and it keeps me hale and hearty. And it's not penicillin. I forget what it is, but it's important to note at the end, uh, Woodley, when he's cutting him down to size and being like, you're so full of shit. One of the things is he, I had that root tested, dude. It's like... Willow bark with penicillin in it. Like, it's right. not, but whatever it, it is, he's discovered like,
0: decades it's ago discovered
1: and... like 80 years ago. It's available in pill form at the drugstore down the street. Like, get yeah. over yourself, dude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many things you think is great that was nothing is that you found this route. Also, it's not helping you. You're dying of your disease. You just think it makes you feel better because it gives you a mild buzz or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that doesn't happen yet. First, Harold gets his last hurrah of bossing everyone around, basically. So this scene basically develops in Paul and Looseleaf's presence. He demolishes Shuttle. Shuttle gets the feeling, and he sort of leads him on, I think, knowingly, that he's becoming ingratiated to this group. And then he goes like... Hey, let me ask you something. Your vacuum cleaner. Is anyone going to be using that 100 years from now? And Shuttle immediately is like, oh, shit. You're making fun of me, aren't you? And he right. goes, no, no, no. I just think you're a worthless waste of human life who should have been born a woman who you know I think are garbage. <laughs> and you should leave now. Like, just right. destroys him cruelly yeah. to the point where Shuttle starts tearing up. And he does the classic asshole bully thing, which is like, Oh, are you going to cry now? Are you crying? Leave. Leave my goddamn house. Right. And it's like out of the blue. The guy's like, literally yeah, it's like, really mean. I was just liking you. And even if you say mean things to me, I still like you. And he's like, great, pussy. Bye. <laughs> That's that scene. And yeah. I think it's for Paul's benefit. He's like, Paul, do you see? This is like what men are like. Watch this shit.
0: And also Woodley leaves in disgust and says, I'm not dealing with this, which just leaves Harold and Penelope and Paul in the apartment. Mm-hmm. And then Harold's like, great. Paul, get out of here. Me and your mother are gonna mate. Uh, here's a hundred dollars to get yourself breakfast. Go. Like it's very, it's very, right. go. It's like very Lucille Bluth. Go see a Star oh, Wars. man, yeah. Like Penelope um, finally out
1: comes out of her bedroom and is like, "Listen, we need to talk." And he's like, "Oh, good, you're awake. Uh, we're gonna fuck now." Paul leave. I don't want you to see us fuck. Right. I I require one fuck. <laughs> Penelope's like, "No, right. We're not doing that. You're terrible."
0: uh we need to speak he starts
1: to get angrier more threatening more hemingway-esque when hemingway was drunk i imagine (laughs) (laughs)
0: right uh and then loose leaf comes back from there and uh wants to talk about being friends again with harold and says that like he things went very badly with loose leaf's wife who is also very angry at him and i and loose leaf says
1: uh or I love, Harold says, you know, loose leaf. this is why we have to, like, torture prisoners of war and destroy works of art and shit. The enemy needs to fear us uncontrollably and think of us as demons. Otherwise, they'll come for our women. And he goes, I didn't think we had women anymore, <laughs> loose leaf. It's like, well, my wife just kicked me out, and you, we still have women? <laughs> it's
0: like, no, our collective women, man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, the things. And then they argue some more about it also loosely reveals that when he got back to his wife's place his wife's mother-in-law opened the door and was so surprised at seeing him that she died of shock so now he has to go deal with the funeral and everything well and yeah
1: and he says and i am gonna go to the funeral but i don't know if it's gonna work out with me and alice and he goes like well, who cares? She's garbage. She was always garbage. Now I see Penelope's also garbage. Just doubling down on. Right. I want people to feel, because that's the thrust of the play, is <laughs> what's wrong with the way this guy views the world. And and, and he stays true to that.
0: <laughs> well, and, and, yeah, and they blow out his wrongness, too, in this scene. Like, mm-hmm. he uh, uses the N-word. He uh, gets called out on it by Penelope, and then Harold's like, no, I can't have any prejudices at all, because I've fought every kind of man, right, of every race, and I've had sex with every kind of woman of every race. So, how could I be prejudiced, right? I've killed and fucked everything. Because
1: you know how if you kill someone, you gain a full understanding of their life experience. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> that's why jeffrey dahmer is the most empathetic knowledgeable wise person for walking the face of the earth right right <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was a joke in case it wasn't clear
0: <laughs> just uh edit that out so it's out of context no yeah. um, uh, he also uh, clearly doesn't care if penelope consents to sex he says ah you don't know what you want which is yeah not great.
1: trust me you want you want sex from me yeah (laughs) ugh, disgusting Uh, oh i'm sorry i just glance by and have to laugh at how funny it is when shuttle's still in the phase where he's trying to impress him there's a scene which would be i I just couldn't imagine how funny it would be as the live play where he gets the ketchup by saying pass the fucking ketchup and then he continues to pass it around the table and he looks down and notices like because he was talking or scared he was a little skimpy on the ketchup on his fries like he wants more ketchup so he timidly goes like I'm sorry. can Keep uh, pass the fucking ketchup again. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love. There's. It's also really, really funny. I think we're focusing on the darkness so much. I just want to remind people that it's hilarious too.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good jokes. In <laughs> yeah. yeah, like uh, much
1: time. like Get Out, like it can fuck with your sense of right and wrong, with yeah. well being hilarious also.
0: I still haven't seen Get Out. <laughs>
1: well, it's both. I gotta get
0: on it. It's both of those. Yeah,
1: scary and hilarious. Scare <laughs> Working title for Get Out was Scare <laughs> Real
0: downgrade, I thought. <laughs> so as Penelope and Harold keep arguing, and ke- she keeps saying that, no, you're being a monster, and also she has some great stuff about heroes and how it seems like most heroes are bad at being at home, and yeah. we don't really like criticize them for it. We just let it go in yes. stories. you know. Her locker um, kind and of then themes. Also, Harold says he's going to go and smash Woodley's violin because it's Woodley's most valuable possession, and so uh, he Woodley says, ruined
1: my wife property. I'm going to ruin his instrument property. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so then she says, if you do that, I'll leave you. And he's like, fine. And she's like, fine. And then we blackout. And then there's another scene of people doing monologues from heaven. And it's a whole group this time. We've got Konigswald. We've got Wanda June. And we've also got Mildred who was the previous wife of Harold and Damn. probably driven to drink by him. There's a part earlier in the play where he says like, yeah, it seems like women always end up as alcoholics. No, but... no,
1: closet. He, first, he hates all women. Yeah. And he says one of the things he hates about them is they're obviously weak because every woman he's ever been with for any length of time ended up having to drink in secret. It's like, yeah. that's you, dude. It's <laughs> <That's> your, <laughs> your fault. fault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's um, like, they're probably all closet alcoholics. Every woman that I berate eventually ends up drinking. It's bizarre. I don't get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Mildred tells horrible stories about him. Yeah. And then we find out that the three of them, along with other people, have been kind of a like emotional support group for each other right. after the horrible experience of being alive.
1: This is where they mention the club. It's like tongue-in-cheek, but they're like, yeah, up in heaven, we have a three-person club where we all support each other for how we got fucked over by Harold Ryan. And, you know where uh, they also say we're really excited to welcome him like they yeah. they do a backhanded code word for just we hope he dies soon they're like and we just can't wait to see him popping up here in heaven meaning like we hope he dies real soon <laughs> and it's funny yeah yeah and i still don't know why but we'll I'll ask that during the meet I don't know why it's called "Happy Birthday, Wanda June," but let's get let's we'll get to that in the meet. Yeah, we we're get, so yeah. close. Uh, so that's the last heaven scene.
0: Yeah, and then now we move into pretty much the last scene of the play. Yeah, uh, we're back at the apartment. We're seeing Looseleaf and Harold together after the funeral for Looseleaf's mother-in-law. Yeah, And the two of them are kind of catching up. Shuttle comes back and says, hey, I just wanted to be your guy's friend, but anyway, it's cool. And they go, get the fuck out of here! (laughs) And then we... Then Woodley comes back.
1: No, then Penelope comes back first. Right. it's for her clothes and things.
0: Yeah, it's kind of all the men, all the catch-up stuff. And then uh, Penelope's back, and she's like, I'm just here for my clothes. I'm going to do that. And they all kind of get in more of a fight about who Harold is Philosophy. And what about yeah. Harold
1: starts actually mounting defense for the first time like logically yeah. he uses the classic well, a few good men scene I think is the most in everyone's head of like the classic you know anyone who, who's had a job where they killed a bunch of people and then someone comes and says you shouldn't have killed all those people says right. if I didn't kill all those people they, they would have killed, killed you, or you would have had to kill them. Like, right. get real. People need to die, or you won't have your money and the nice shit that you want, or safety eventually. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. I did what needed to be done, blah, blah, blah. Right. Including hunting tribesmen. Yeah. I guess that kept Penelope safe somehow. <laughs> but
0: Yeah. Well, and then uh, I feel like Penelope's response is really great, and she gets into some stuff about how, oh, guys like you, Harold, with your mindset, you think that death is an honor. Like, you think by killing mm-hmm. something, you're making it part of some kind of epic story, you're making it part of some kind of cool struggle or yeah. something. You think death is an exciting thing, but that means you don't really have a purpose other than eventually dying. Like, you just keep risking death until you're going to dramatically die at the end of your life, and that's it, yes. isn't it? Yes,
1: which he tries to orchestrate right.
0: presently. <laughs> and that either that or things before this kind of break his brain. And Well, he gets so <laughs> threatening that Paul eventually comes out with a rifle. Yeah. Basically, he becomes
1: right, right, right. so scary and is like, but you're garbage to me now. You left me. He doesn't say he's going to kill her, but he's like, I could kill anyone I want. You think I can't kill your doctor fiance? You think I couldn't kill you if I wanted to kill you? Like, I've killed hundreds of people. And uh, Paul comes out, obviously having learned his lesson and switched sides with his father's hunting rifle, Yeah, points it at Adam. classic protecting mom from abusive dad style. <laughs> and he does classic abusive dad move of... Well, is it loaded? Oh, see there, son, the safety's on. Flip that little thing. Okay, good. Pull that lever. All right. Now you're ready to kill your old man. Do you think you're man enough to kill your
0: old man? (laughs) Right. Straight up abuse. And
1: Penelope says my favorite line, which is, oh, I just realized what this all is. You're furious every time someone won't kill you. You do realize you're a piece of shit. You're so angry because you kept expecting one of these Nazis to finally kill you. No one will kill you. The longer you live, the more you realize you're a piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> that was my interpretation of that yeah. scene, and I loved it. Yeah, yeah. it's great.
0: Yeah. And it, uh, and then I believe Penelope and Paul both leave and get out of there, which leaves uh, Harold with just Woodley. And Woodley criticizes him some more, and Harold eventually asks Woodley to kill him. And Woodley won't shoot him, but Woodley also says, I think I already did kill you. Like, I put the idea <laughs> yeah. in your head. That you're an idiot and you're a clown and you are not the impressive person you think you are. And it's just going to keep echoing in your head. Like, I think you're dead, man. I don't know what to do. And I know
1: I'm right. So you're going to see the evidence mount up. And even if you can delude yourself some amount of time, you're going to eventually realize I'm right. Yeah. So, like, I won. I don't have to shoot you. Right. And Harold's sad. (laughs) (laughs) And then Harold
0: ducks off to shoot himself. And Woodley... Well,
1: they say he says, I'm just going to put this rifle... Back in the rifle slash suicide room. Right. <laughs> offstage suicide chamber. And he goes, now, rifle slash now Harold, room. please promise me, right. the audience, Anton Chekhov and Harold Pinter, that right. you're not about, we're not going to hear a gunshot from offstage, <laughs> they say. He's like, you're not going to shoot um, yourself. And he goes, No. Just gonna go off stage. Gunshot.
0: <laughs> and the way the way. Gunshot Kurt,
1: from off stage.
0: The, the way Kurt is, I'm a little surprised. Chekhov isn't literally in the play. I, I could see, I like could see him easily doing that. Just in heaven, like
1: stroking his goatee, watching, being like, "Good use of the gun in the that play." You're watching.
0: It might have suicide in it <laughs> because of gun. I'm just <laughs> saying. And Chekhov. Anyway. And then off stage, gunshot. And then Harold walks back and says, "I missed." End of play. <laughs> Here's your show.
1: Took me so fucking long to get why that's a great ending. I think it is, but I didn't. What do you think I'm when, too? Yeah, I really want to know how it first hit you when you just read the last line and closed the book. What do you think?: It meant?:
0: I actually I thought of the Sopranos, which I, I haven't really seen through, but I know <laughs> about the ending. Yeah. and a professor had had a theory that the whole show is mocking Tony Soprano and what he's about and his overall life. And so giving him an ending where it just sort of ends is like the final insult. Like, no, you don't even get that gangster ending. You don't even get to have that epic death in a hail of bullets at the time. I booth totally kind of agree.
1: Thing. And we have mentioned on the, especially, yeah, talking in this play about how death lends things meaning and you don't want to give him that meaning. Yeah. Because I have seen the whole series. I like the series. I, Sopranos. Yeah. And I, it totally does read as a deep examination of someone who thinks they're strong and smart and powerful and making the right moves and doesn't understand why their life is falling apart. And you, the audience, realize it's because. If you do enough violence and evil and crime, like, shit starts to destabilize and go badly for you. Right. But Tony Soprano can't get his head out of his ass and figure that out. Yeah. He wants his life to get better, so he commits bigger, more heinous murders to try and get <laughs> things, and it doesn't work out, and he can't figure out why. And I believe we covered on Cracked that, like, they've basically announced that there were previous iterations of the finale script, and they know, like, the creators of the show know, yeah, they die in a hail of gunfire as soon as the credits roll, but... He doesn't deserve to do the death scene where he looks all heroic and dies in a hail of gunfire. Right. Yes, his life is going to go downhill until some gangster eventually kills him. Even if it's not the gangsters, these gangsters in this episode. What did you think he's going to happen? He'll die as a mobster. They all do eventually. Or he'll go to jail as a mobster. Right, fuck Tony (laughs) Soprano it's basically the point I feel like it was almost a Breaking Bad that didn't puss out at the end
0: that's the thing doesn't soften
1: the blow at the end because the
0: opposite to me is Breaking Bad where it's like no he dies among his and it's like and it does seem to lend meaning
1: to his life that he died tragically like among next to a meth lab. Yeah, yeah right.
0: <laughs> that was somehow with, important. With a Bad finger song and everything else. Good That's song, the though. Great uh, song. It's a good song, too. <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought the ending was like, you don't even get to have the Hemingway ending. You're no Hemingway. Yep, you're like, so, yeah. I, and I, like, I'm just, I knew Ernest Hemingway, Senator, and you're no Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <yeah. you know? laughs>
1: it did take, I'll just, it took me like a week to settle on that. I thought it was just a funny joke because of the Chekhov's gun thing. Like, it's so funny mm, to yeah. have, well, of course, like every play, now we're going to hear a gunshot off stage. Oop, there it is. Now the lights will go down. Wait, he came back out. That's just <laughs> funny. Like if you knew plays yeah. well, that is a funny twist on what you would expect to see as a playgoer. But yeah, and then I realized, oh, it's also the perfect thing because either he didn't have the guts to kill himself, which is cowardly, which is the last thing he would want, right. or he's so incompetent with a rifle that he missed shooting himself in the head, which is equally humiliating for, like, he prides right. himself on being a sharp shot hunter. That's his main deal. Yeah. So he's just pathetic. He's been, like the guy said, he's been deconstructed by the play and he's been killed without needing to be killed. We don't have to see him die. It's over.
0: Right. Him. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's done.
1: And I think it's, that's hopeful in a way, like Vonnegut is saying, and I hope it's true that the need for extreme violence is waning from the world rather than becoming more important.
0: I think he sees that it is too. Like, I think, uh, or at at least uh,
1: (laughs) in the scope of (laughs) tens and hundreds of thousands of years, obviously it has, but
0: yeah, like it's happening very slowly. Yeah. And there's still plenty of people who are into it, but I think he at (laughs) least, I think he's at least arguing that the violence looks a little more ridiculous with each passing. And maybe it's just because this play even looks more ridiculous now. But like, uh, I think he pretty effectively argues that if you just transpose Odysseus forward... You look awful. Or, like, like even yeah, worse.
1: There can be good things about a turn of phrase or whatever, but you can see how dated in the negative way the cultural tropes of that culture were. Yeah. And it's great. It's good that we've progressed from then and let's keep it going. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 There's something exciting about it. And
1: certainly, more, on, I mean, very much about violence in general, but also very, I think, distinctly pointed at masculinity. Yeah. What it means to be a male is to be a good man. And I don't. I'm not just saying that in the way where we mean all humankind to be a good right. man in the things that are specific to living your life as identifying as a male. Is yeah. that violence? Is that the identifier of what it is to be male? It's asking questions like that. And I, I think about stuff like that a lot. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it's a great thing to get at it.
1: It's really underrated. I, I have not yeah. read it before and I don't hear a lot of praise for it, probably because it's off format,
0: like just because it's right. a play
1: and not a novel. But it's great
0: yeah also i feel like just reading plays doesn't get recommended the way reading novels does yeah to the extent, unless totally. it's shakespeare as like specifically yeah or like, martin McDonough. Like, yeah you
1: know right. Yeah, right if a playwright makes several really good hit movies and you found out he used to be
0: a playwright then you yeah.
1: will go read some plays that's right. about oh, it, yeah. it yeah.
0: <laughs> so i think we can go from here into another segment called fortitude time it's time to be
1: strong Ooh,
0: yeah we live mm. in a
1: fort oh yeah we're not gonna be
0: yeah. oh, weak, lifting, weak anymore. Lifting, lifting, lifting. Do you even Fortitude, bro?
2: <laughs>
0: so that is. We have a few other little plays to look at. We're basically focusing on Kurtz plays from the 60s and 70s, which is yep. where most all of them are from. And Fortitude, little was...
1: plays. The first one starring a Doctor Little. Oh. Ah, ah. You are slaying puns I this am, episode without even knowing it. <laughs> I'm a natural I'm like Mr. Magooing yeah. into them. It's amazing. Or like five to see, whereas I'm off. I'm off today.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you really
0: decided to take a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, that you I took gave one yourself. for the team. <laughs> I did know how bad it was as I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Fortitude ran in Playboy in September of nineteen sixty eight. I get the sense he probably wrote it a little earlier than that. It's also technically scripted as some sort of short film. There's camera moves and cuts. I was going to ask
1: you, are you sure it's a play? Because it often says cut to, and you cut to locations that would be easy to cut to in a movie, difficult to transition quickly to in a play.
0: Yeah. So it might be a short film. It's a little bit fuzzy. And it reads it's also... like a
1: mix because it's not written like a traditionally formatted screenplay either.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and right, it's not nearly the length that a feature would possibly be. It doesn't seem like it's the. Re- it also doesn't seem like it. Like a lot of times, people will make a short film that's sort of a proof of concept of the movie they like to make. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's that. It seems like it's a pretty contained. This is what it is.
1: It seems like we could have covered it in Monkey House.
0: Like It it reads
1: as a pretty classic, strong, curt, sci-fi concept short story. Yes. For some reason that eludes us, Playboy wanted him to write it as a script or he wanted to write it as a script instead of prose, so he did.
0: Yeah. But it's, it's
1: fine. It works either way.
0: And we also know that from the, like, early 60s on, he had some connection to Hollywood. Like, he wasn't getting things made, but he was, like, he had agents who were presenting things to people. Yeah, that sweet Rodney Dangerfield connect. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) right. And so it does seem like he might have had the thought in his head, oh, I could make a movie, but then never turn this into what would be a movie.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, It's, yeah, just, yeah. It, it's that format. But. Experimenting with the format of film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Fortitude puts us in a house in upstate New York, because upstate Surprise. New York, Kurt. And we're seeing the operation of Dr. Norbert Frankenstein, who has turned all but the head of a woman, into mechanical parts.
1: Obviously don't even need to go into the name shit yeah. <laughs> this time. <laughs> he uh, also has yeah. an
0: assistant named Tom Swift, which is another character. Right, stuff. exactly. Yeah, I uh, know. And then, yeah, no,
1: uh, Dr. Manslaughter Abomination Frankenstein uh, <laughs> is doing some super science, and we hope it goes well. <laughs>
0: yeah, and he gets visited by a regular doctor whose name is Elbert Little, because, mm-hmm. of course, he's yeah. a, a little person in the scope of what's going on. And uh, Not so, in the literal sense. And it's think. pretty short, sure, but it, it tours us around. There's one room where... Mechanical versions of every organ in the human body are running. And then there's another room where the woman's head is, who's being kept alive and created by Dr. Frankenstein.
1: So it's one of the wealthiest women in the world, inherited money from a billionaire tycoon husband.
0: Her name's Sylvia Lovejoy. Sylvia Lovejoy.
1: And uh, And she
0: also has a beautician named Gloria, who's sort of her friend, but also is kind of a caretaker and also maybe a flaw in the system. Because we find out that Sylvia has occasionally asked to be killed. Because these machines are going to keep her alive forever, and she, on some level, would like to die at this point.
1: Yeah, so the basic premise, if you didn't read it and aren't going to read it, is imagining when medical science can keep you alive indefinitely, but the weird period where it's only available to the ultra-wealthy. So this is like one of the richest people on Earth, therefore she's allowed to be immortal. However, the technology is in its infancy, so like computers, your fake organs and your pacemaker and shit take up an entire building— and you're just a head on a tripod with two robot arms. Yeah. That's all they can actually keep alive. However, they also, because they have control of your central nervous system, you're happy all the time. Yeah. They drug you, like they'll literally be like, send her up a little bit of LSD. They literally <laughs> say LSD, because she's undergoing a trauma right now. We want her to be out of her mind. And, you know, like a patient on a morphine drip. So basically there's everything seems hunky-dory peachy keen, but there's these little hints that In weird moments where maybe the drugs wear off and they don't administer enough quickly enough or something, she'll suddenly go like, kill me. Please kill me. And then they'll (laughs) press a button. She'll go like, never mind. I didn't mean that. Don't kill me. That would be the last thing I would want. Right.
2: So the question is,
1: well, wait, if you're a conscionable person, should should we kill her? It seems like. Yeah. Is that the real her that wants to die? And the doctor's like, no, your brain is only chemicals. The real her is also the one that is happy and loves being alive. Yeah. So, you'd be a fucking, you'd be murdering that person if you listened to the person who said, please kill me in a single moment of sadness. That's like saying anyone who says, I feel like killing myself, you should shoot them immediately. But of course, our human instinct is like, well, it still seems fucked up. I don't know. It just seems weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's all, and it's another, I think, really interesting angle on that thing Kirk gets at pretty frequently where just the idea is that. People's bodies will determine a lot of who they are, like just chemistry and chemicals and synapses firing is a lot of who we are as people. <laughs> like we're just creating personalities and things on top of that. Yeah. And so, this, and if, this do is you another have any true core
1: identity, or yeah. is your like, is it fair to say someone who has had a schizophrenic break, like I know the real you's still in there? Well, I don't know what's real in that context. Like right. all brain things are chemical combinations, so. You can say, I hope you stop evincing evidence of violent schizophrenia, but <laughs> it's not a less real person that's yeah. going through that.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a David Wong column where he talks about that a bit where like in our heads we will treat some ba- a lot of bad things we do as, oh, I was tired or I was drunk or that wasn't the real me. But like it kind mm-hmm. of is, you know, like it
1: happened. And the opposite, which is that I think one of the most human things to do that I don't notice people catch themselves doing a lot is to... Have a very obvious chemical baseline reason for being in a bad mood. Yeah. Like you ate at the wrong time, your sleep cycle's off, you ate junk food and it gives is messing with you in this little weird way that you then project onto whatever is going on. And I oh, think that's sure. definitely a point. Of, like, I mean, heck, in my life, I've gotten into big pointless arguments with, you know, my girlfriend because everyone's been through this but i think it's good to catch yourself you'll be like no this is important to me you're like trying to change this aspect of who i am and then at the end you'll be like i was just hungry (laughs) (laughs) sorry we fought for an hour yeah Uh, so yeah and they
0: same such a thing
1: there's a line in here where she says where it cuts to them in the basement saying oh shit she's out of happy juice it cuts to her upstairs being hysterically depressed And then they give her a little juice, and she's happy again. And someone walks in the room, and they say, "How are you feeling today?" And she says, "I was very depressed, but now that you're visiting, I could sing. I feel great because of because of your presence." No, you feel great because of the drugs they pumped into your cerebral cortex. Yeah, you're interpreting it as you like this person who came in the room, and we do shit like that all the time in our lives.
0: But uh, Fortitude, the play, or I guess short movie, it moves into a point where Gloria tries to sneak a gun to Sylvia so she can kill herself. It turns out that Sylvia's apparatus has been constructed so that she's physically unable to point a gun at herself to kill herself. And you also find out that it wasn't clear to me from it whether it's because he loves the science of it or loves her, but Dr. Frankenstein has fallen in love with Sylvia, it's either through the process uh, yeah. of building her every part of her body. Doctor Little,
1: Doctor Little, it turns out who ostensibly is there to tour the facility is actually also there to try and help her commit suicide. Yeah, because she wrote him a very heartrending letter saying, "They're keeping me here. I'm a prisoner. Please help me out of this hellhole." And it turns out every couple months she does that. Like she'll write someone a letter trying yeah. to get him. And so it's funny they find out that he's secretly trying to kill her, and they're like, "Ha!"
2: You don't get it.
1: People try to kill her all the time. We made it so she can't even kill herself. Forget it. And he just fires Gloria and goes like, Ha ha, now I got you fired and you're gonna go to jail. But he feels no sense of fear that anything bad will happen. It's a it's a foolproof system.
0: Yeah, there's no it's there's no way to break it, he says. And then at the end of it we find out that it's also a system with two whole apparatuses set up where Dr. Frankenstein, if Sylvia is into it. It can become the other head in it, and the two of them can be connected, he says, more than any people ever have, because yeah. they're sharing a heart and a lungs and all these and other mechanical mine,
1: parts of their mind, they imply, too. Yeah, basically, everyone's asking the question of what is love, because Gloria says, I love her, she's my friend, she's being kept alive on a machine, she wants to die, I want to kill her because she's my friend and I love her. And the guy's like, no, I love her because... Just when she gets a little depressed, I don't kill her. I want her to live a long, full, happy life Yeah. for thousands of years. I love her. Fuck you. I love her so much. In fact, when I die, I'm going to have myself grafted onto her body machine. <laughs> to which Sylvia, the lady who's the head, replies... Really? Like, you love me like that? Like, you would want this life, this life of just being ahead? And he goes, Sure, I would. And she goes, Okay, then. And she shoots him 12 times in the body with the, right. with the pistol Gloria gave her because she can't kill herself, but she can shoot the gun. Right. So then it cuts to he is ahead, sure enough. They're side yeah. by side heads and they're both really happy.
0: Right. Really which is happy, creepy. but also probably just chemically that way well you're right it's so very it's clear great, well dark ending kind of thing
1: tom swift or whatever john swift
0: tom swift tom yeah.
1: swift so it's not a jonathan swift reference i guess but
0: no but tom swift is a character in like oh. young boys fiction from. oh okay i didn't know that yeah
1: yeah he pumps them full of drugs to wake them up and be happy and sure enough they wake up and they look at each other and they seem happy and in love and it's a happy ending slash <laughs> creepy ending it's very twilight <laughs> sony it's cool yeah yeah it was just great because it comes down to your interpretation if you think it's creepy that they're heads then it was a creepy ending if you right. think it doesn't matter then I guess it's good they, <laughs> then it's like uh, who who am I this time it's just a couple of crazy kids yeah. who finally get together
0: <laughs> right they their strange weird relationship in their strange weird way yeah, yeah. it's
1: punch drunk love for disembodied heads
0: yeah oh I never thought of that. that's cool hey let's do another segment this is a segment called Christmas Time Jingle, jingle, jingle,
1: jingle, 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 Wow, same instinct.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right there. Uh this is one more uh it's kind of a short play too. It's they call it a an original playlet where it was published. This is called The Very oh First boy. Christmas Morning.
1: I gotta get out of here. And
0: uh as all great drama does, it was run in Better Homes and Gardens. Yep. In December of 1962. I know on the short story episodes we've said like, oh, you know these magazines that you think are just Cosmo now or whatever, they actually used to run amazing great short fiction. I'm pretty sure Better Homes and Gardens didn't. Uh, it's always been point. what it is. I think it's always just been about the homes and the gardens so and this so
1: was always a fluff piece. Right. It wasn't like, you know, Lincoln Republicans are not like what you think of. No, it, now. <laughs> it right. was Better Homes and Gardens. He wrote this shitty... 500-word, basically article about isn't Christmas cute Yeah, to get a paycheck, I have to imagine, from Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, because December 1962, that puts it between Mother Night and Cat's Cradle. And Sukurt so was at a point where the short story market had dried up. He also was writing novels, but they weren't commercially hitting in a way where he could live on them. He hadn't even done cat's cradle yet. So other than people who were sirens of Titan, super fans, he didn't really have a big fan base going on. And so he also was right when he was trying to put all of his three kids and three adopted kids into college, you know? And so, and there, he had a lot of financial pressure and I don't know, there's not like a letter I've read where he says, I wrote this playlet for money, but he probably wrote this playlet for money. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's God, a
1: synopsize it.
0: A, a December 1962. It is a Christmas Jesus. thing. And it's a pretty straightforward approach to giving your group of children oh in your house God. something to perform. Hey, let's grade it. F. <laughs> Fauna grades. That segment's over. Some spoiled yeah.
1: kids become not spoiled because Jesus is born.
0: Yeah, we don't We don't need to... The very simple plot is there's a kid named Joel, whose father owns the inn that Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus are staying in. I'm just going to assume you know the very basic story of the nativity, uh, and you can look it up if you need to for plot purposes.
1: Admit it, Alex, you've been waiting
0: for a chance
1: to de- dig deep into the New Testament. Wanted I know to talk that's your to you jam. Guys about yeah. some
0: good news. So one kid plays Joel, and then four other kids play... The child, spoiled children of a rich merchant. And then all the other kids you got around play other angels. who so will just crowd them. And it'll be like a nice little thing to do in your living room or rec room or church basement or wherever you're doing it.
1: I just thought since it was Vonnegut, it would be a cute little Christmas pageant. But the message would somehow be sardonic, undermining yeah. Christmas, or at least deeply insightful but the message is really just wasn't this a cute thing for your kids to do at christmas
0: <laughs> yeah and like um, the they idea eat is... all the
1: food there's only so much food yeah there's only a little food for breakfast they get up early and they're gonna eat it all
0: right there's like one piece, and so and angel
1: says don't eat it all give it to jesus because he's been born and it's better to give jesus the food <laughs>
0: right because jesus
1: is gonna save you from your sins wouldn't you rather have that than the food and they go oh you're right and they give jesus the bread
0: yeah, and so there's one prop piece of bread, and Amen. the kids How ritually alerted. each take a chunk of it and then say, No, no, I'm putting this back. And then, whoever, whichever kid you have playing the Archangel, just picks up this wad of bread, takes it out of the room. Takes it to go. You hear him off camera go, Hey, Jesus,
1: you like bread balls? We got a bottomless basket of bread.
0: No carbs, no carbs. That's the baby Jesus, apparently. And he said unto them, I'm watching my cars. I'm watching my cars. And so then uh, the angel comes back and says, oh, you were nice to get all this. It's it's kind of a nice... But also, you you brought up very interestingly before that at the beginning of this play, the kids say direct to audience... Hi, Merry Christmas, I'm playing this character, this character is like this. And that's, even in this very tossed-off money grab of a little Christmas playlet, he's still doing that Vonnegut thing of my characters directly tell you yeah. what's going on. I would as a narrator in a novel, but since it's a play, the characters will just tell you.
1: It is Vonnegut-y. I yeah. would say it's the only vonnegut thing. Like, there's not yeah. even a single Kurt Blurt. Because he doesn't no. write, it, there's no jokes or like the clever turns of phrase. It, the the no. lines are like... We That's shouldn't be selfish it because it's not what Jesus would want, I yeah. guess. Well, so uncurt to me.
0: There is One of the, within the self-descriptions... I mean, he, he says we
1: shouldn't be selfish, that is true, but...
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and within the self-descriptions, the spoiled children of the merchant literally say, in this play, we are the four spoiled children of a merchant. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there is kind of the thing, and it might just be because you want to make kids feel good, but the thing of, like, couching all the characters and... I know I'm 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 a person playing a villainous person, right? And also they'll turn out to be nice. Don't worry about it. Like there's a, a yeah. humanist positive thing there, but it might just be those childrens goofing around, and that's what we're doing.
1: Yeah, and if you have kids, I implore you set up the old iPad or Surface oh, or whatever, boy. film them reenacting this, send it yeah. to us.
0: And you can. It, <laughs> it's also if you just like old magazine stuff. If you go to Facebook.com slash Kurt guys, we have a yeah. post about all the plays we're talking about in this episode. And we there's no there's no way you can find Better Homes and Gardens from 62. So we uploaded a PDF that be in Multiple Bonne right? friends yeah. pointed out. And it should be in the footnotes. That'll be too, in the yeah. footnotes. So if you wanna, if you want to see the play and check it out. It's got like the old ads. Uh, not and just like the some play, it's also got and... a really
1: creepy raisin ad for raisins. It's yes. got a good ad uh, for artificial sweetener featuring a woman in a house dress exhaustedly leaning against her vacuum cleaner but it's okay because now she can have artificial sweeteners and she won't get so fat that her husband is disgusted by her when he comes home from the factory right (laughs) (laughs) it's like a life
0: insurance ad yeah it's great
1: it's old it's old stuff oh yeah Three generations of protection. I remember that ad. Oh wow! wow. It really worked. It did. Uh, <laughs> I have a good memory for ads from those sixties. <laughs> yeah,
0: and those are uh, those are the plays we're talking about. But today. seriously, I, I mean, like... just
1: film your kids wadding up some bread and send it to us. That's what we <laughs> want to see in our inbox. Anything you can get, get to us. We'd really appreciate. <laughs> Waste some food. Yeah. It's the very first Christmas morning challenge where you wad up bread on camera <laughs> to help no one in particular. <laughs> yeah.
0: And we, I think we will not be drawing on that play in this segment, but let's do a segment called Kurt Blurt. <gasps> jing, Blurt.
1: jing, jing, jing. Merry ooh, Christmas. Ooh. All these blurts will be from Christmas morning. <laughs> nope,
0: not likely. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is where we, if you've never heard the show before, pull out just favorite turns of phrase and things from the, out. Uh, things we've read. And I feel like we'll primarily be drawing on good old happy birthday one to June. Because mm-hmm. that's the main uh, meat of this stuff.
1: Do you have any fortitudes? I have a bit of we're fortitude. Good? Okay.
0: Yeah. Let's do fortitude <laughs> right now. Sure. We just we'll get about those out of the way. Go for it. Uh, there's one part where uh, they're criticizing Dr. Frankenstein for how he's handled this woman who he turned into a, a head on a mm-hmm. stick. And he says, how can you call her dead? She reads the Ladies' home journal. It's <laughs> yes. a pretty good joke. <laughs> like, like that's the thing he pulls. For, also, hey, you, you know, knew
1: my name was Dr. Frankenstein when you hired me for this project. Like, wake yeah, up, people. <laughs> that would have been, yeah, yeah. I feel like it would be hard to land that job. <laughs> just if your name was unfortunately Frankenstein
0: Reading this play made me go back And like I didn't have time to rewatch the movie But just like read a young Frankenstein sure. plot synopsis To like yeah. remember my favorite jokes From that Mel Brooks movie Val-ruca. It's just great
1: yeah. Well it's gotta be <laughs> that was, that was first one my f- Damn your eyes is my favorite <laughs> Too late And wait what's the
0: Like, put the candle back. That's it. Put the
1: candle back. (laughs) Let's just do a podcast where we watch that movie. Repeat Gun Frankenstein. Yeah. (laughs) I just think it's funny that gun control in America. Yeah, yeah. Start commenting, you assholes. (laughs) This cracked is SJW bullshit.
0: Please do comment. But I thought
1: it was was funny that, uh, at least in liberal quarters, gun control in America was already an issue. Enough for him to include the line. We're like, where'd you get a pistol, <laughs> Gloria? Who smuggled the pistol in? And she's like, Oh, it was real easy. I could have had a bazooka if I wanted one. They're fourteen ninety eight. It's like, uh, oh, I didn't know that like gun show loopholes was even a problem back then. Yeah, and, and I th- I think yes, I think was please email for me, for me for and explain how gun show loopholes are not a problem. I'd love to hear yeah. your explanation
0: of that. If you can pull that off.
1: Um, oh okay. yeah, I have one more from Fortitude, which is yeah. her pancreas or something stops working and everyone freaks out but then Dr Frankenstein just punches it hits it like you would hit an old radiator <laughs> yeah. and it starts to pump again and he goes that's more like it science that's the <laughs> line that's more like it science ah <laughs> uh, that's more like- oh no he says that's more like it and gloria goes science like behold science
0: <laughs> that's yeah that's very uh cat's cradle to me like oh now that we know these explanations yeah no it doesn't help at all also if it was meant (laughs) to
1: be a short the only line i'll knock is when they cut back from the room with the head in it to the room with all the organs yeah and the one character who's talking to basically the only other character says well you've made the grand tour and now here you are back at the beginning yeah why would you say that to me? We just walked together over there and back here. Yeah. I just love that if it was meant to be a short film, that's like a classic scripting mistake. Right. You don't start a scene with, "Well, here we are in the laboratory again,"
0: as yeah. you know. <laughs> cuz that's cuz it's it's written like a short film, but it really only happens two places, and it would be so easy to just make that apply. Right. And then it's you a, just divide the stage and The only do way it. I know it, right.
1: it just says cut to so often, it feels like it's got to be a movie.
0: Yeah. Should have finished it before you It's yeah. a Playboy, Kurt. But who knows? Smooth it out. Let's June it up. Yeah. Let's get our magic wandas out. There's a lot from the intro for me. And he also, he spends the whole intro to this basically shitting on himself. Telling you what a bad writer he is and how the actors saved the play. And my and, edition has uh,
1: photos in it. It's quite yeah, difficult to shit on yourself, but there's photos of Kurt getting it done. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, it's nasty, man. <laughs> I, mine actually does have photos, but not a Yeah, fat. I thought yeah. you were talking about no. that. Yeah, no, yeah. I was <laughs> initially <laughs> en route
0: to a bit. <laughs> in the intro, uh, the very first thing he says is this play is what I did when I was 47 years old, when my six children were no more. And it was children
1: really, no more. I checked. Oh, he doesn't mean yeah. they all died.
0: <laughs> oh, I wrote that down wrong. He oh, says, boy. my six children were
1: children no more.
0: <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I felt like there was a death in you know them moving on from his life. It still but, works, yeah, but I just yeah, want uh, yeah. our I, audience I to know. because <laughs> hey, Transpose a word. Oh, I'm a
1: huge Kurt fan, and in the Mr. Rosewater episode, I didn't realize and therefore didn't tie into how obviously important it is that he is the son of a suicide. Yeah, same. Who, right. Yeah, we So there's it, stuff yeah, we don't yeah, know. Yeah. So I want people to know. If you're not familiar with Kurt's life, no. His six kids didn't all die before him. That would be real sad. Yeah, yeah, That'd be some Edgar Allan Poe shit.
0: <laughs> but it, I don't know. I like that in one line at the beginning, you can kind of set up, for one thing, why mm-hmm. he's writing a play at all, and then also what it's about.
1: And... so Yeah, I think in that same paragraph, he says, and somewhere in there, my father died. Yeah. Somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's
1: great. <laughs> Still with the intro. I mean, I got a lot out of the intro, too. Yeah, but... This is probably the most satisfying, exciting thing I ever read Kurt Wright. To me personally, based on my existing relationship with the rest of his work. But he says in the intro, I had in fact written a book about everybody being right all the time, The Sirens of Titan. What, what? What? (laughs) <laughs> the, he didn't put what, what? The Sirens of Titan Ham, ham Okay, ham. yeah So this horn burp, burp, burp. He's describing a chronosynclastic infindibulum He says, I had written a book about everybody's being right all the time The Sirens of Titan I live in a chronosynclastic infundibulum. I feel like one of the things that I feel to be true and observe and know about life That I am in the minority of people who feel that way Yeah Is that I can see everyone's point of view all the time. It's hard for me to not even hateful viewpoints that I don't agree with. I instinctually start to parse, well, what forces in their life make them see it that way? Not that I think it's right, but why do they see it that way? And there is a point of view or a vantage from which everybody's right about almost everything. Obviously, I have core beliefs. I'm not like a cipher, but (laughs) you know what I mean? To a large degree, I go through life being like, yeah, man, Every it's hard to know anything, in, like in the Socrates way, manner of speaking, because anything can be doubted or anything can be broken down or looked at a different way. Yeah. And I'm just like, great. Kurt felt that way too. That's so happy to me. Yeah. That he says, I live in a chronos and classic and It makes me feel a connection to him that I didn't feel before.
0: That's so great. Yeah. So I,
1: that's my favorite line in the play. And it's not in the play.
0: I have that too. And I really like that extra wrinkled, uh, Interpreting sirens and just reading it—it's amazing. Yeah, and
1: it helps confirm like that the way I interpreted sirens. Not that there's like a right and wrong interpretation, but is along the lines of what he felt when he was putting it in. So I'm like, it's just nice to have double confirmation. You're not a complete moron, you know, like misinterpreting it.
0: And it snuck into a play. Read his plays. Yeah, dope. Sneak.
1: Yeah, I'm paraphrasing oh. what Harold says about an educated woman is like pouring honey into a fine Swiss watch. That's stolen from Kurt's own brother. And in the intro, he says, My brother once looked at a quail that our father had shot right. and said, Gosh, it's like smashing a fine Swiss watch. Yeah. Like I don't know what's better about the dead version than just looking at it fly and walk around? Why do you want the dead version? <laughs>
0: and even it's even sort of a neat way to describe like now you can see some of its guts and stuff and that sucks. You know, like yeah. it was just nicer as a thing. Oh, there's also within the play. Woodley has a line because uh, they're talking about sort of the state of the state of the world and and uh, who the enemies in America are. And Woodley says, Chinese maniacs and Russian maniacs and American maniacs and French maniacs and British maniacs have turned this lovely, moist, nourishing blue-green ball into a doomsday device. Dope. Yeah, really great. Things
1: die. All things die. My new family dissolved into the late afternoon. This is Kurt talking about the play, Rapping. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? As we went our separate ways out of the theater district, blue movies and peep shows offered to confirm our new solitude if we cared to drop in. Yeah. That's (laughs) great stuff.
0: It's also, yeah, it's also, it's one of the few times I've ever read somebody talking about like the experience of their first theatrical thing. Because I, I, I mean, I did theater in high school and a little Dead bit out. In
1: college. And you get that temporary and, fam, family feeling and you go, like, right. we're going to hang out every day after this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then everybody's busy. And, you know, and yeah.
1: And you're alone again. Yeah. Yep.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> War is not healthy for children and other living things. That's just a good bumper sticker.
0: Was that from uh, the still, poster Woodley got him?
1: I'm trying to churn through the intro because you're already into the oh, play and I'm bad. still doing yeah, intros. Yeah. No, do but it. that's all my intros. Now yeah. we're into the play. <laughs> give, us some, give us some play lines.
0: I don't think Kurt leans on it, but it's stuck like, out oh, to me. Penelope, when Paul's run off and he's probably in the park somewhere... There's a line where Penelope just says, the only thing I ever told him about life was keep out of the park after the sun goes down, which is now like a shorthand in my brain for, I, I was a parent and like, I think I, I, that was, that was all I gave him. Okay. You know, or like, uh, so, like there, it just, it was I a wrote nice in the meat, uh, me.
1: like ask Uncle Alex to explain why, what that meant. So good. <laughs> oh, perfect. Why does she, yeah. What's the symbology? She mentions it two or three times. Yeah. I tried to teach him the right things. I told him not to go in the park after dark.
0: Yeah, well, because it's that thing of parents or kids having kids kind of thing. Like, you realize, like... I tried to be a good parent. And also, I did not have a lot to, to Of knowledge impart. to impart. Yeah, Shoot. sure. I, I basically knew you might get robbed in Central Park at a certain late hour. Okay. Right.
1: But I let a 50-year-old dude force me to marry him when I was engaged and 18. So, like, maybe I don't know that much about yeah. what I should be doing. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Although it is good not to go to Central Park at night if you're 11 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's probably crazy,
0: <laughs> Especially in 70s New York, you know? Yeah.
1: You got to fight from time to time to get eaten or you'll get eaten alive, to which someone replies, I think Penelope, that's not true or it doesn't have to be unless we make it true. Maybe Woodley. And then Harold says, I'm not even going to say why it's timely, but I think you'll know. I just have one more thing to say. If you elect a president, by God, you support that president no matter what he does, no matter what. It's the only way you can have a country.
0: (laughs) It's also, it's borderline out of nowhere. They're not even really talking about that. And he's just like, by the way, serve presidents.
1: It's as if Kurt knew that reading that all these years later, for many of us, that would be shorthand for, oh, this guy's an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I just enjoyed that.
0: There's a line where Paul sort of offhand says, if you're depressed, laughing doesn't help much. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like is something Kurt, at least to an extent, believes. Like, I think he believes that comedy is how we deal with a lot of things and how we, face a lot of things, but also there's still things, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't heal it completely or anything.
1: All my comedian friends and everyone, but especially anyone who writes comedy, I highly recommend another podcast episode, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. Do you know what I'm He's about to He's a say?
0: competitor, buddy. Oh no.
1: Yeah. Any um, other
0: podcast is a competitor. They had a
1: recent short episode called The Satire Paradox that uses numbers to try and back up how comedy is used to get points across whether it's effective, and if it impacts the issues that it's actually aimed at. And yeah. it will change the way I write satire. Not all comedy is satire, but if you understand the difference, you know what I mean when I say, sometimes I do want to write satire, and listening to this will change what my tactics are when That's, I do that. Oh, that sounds so amazing. So listen to it if you write satire ever.
0: I actually, I kind of had that epiphany end of this past year, 2016, where I, we were doing an end-of-year podcast for Crack, and it was like, oh, pull your just your favorite things from the year. And one of my favorite things was a Samantha B thing where they went through the process of trying to get an eagle mascot from the NRA because the NRA has like an eagle mascot for kids. And they did this brilliant thing where it was like harder to get a mascot than to get guns. You know, there were more laws and, uh, and went all over the country. And I was like, this is pretty much an utterly perfect piece of satire as far as this issue and how it works. And then I realized like, oh, it didn't impact anything. You know what I right. mean? Like it might have changed some minds of some people, but as far as immediate, tangible results, it didn't matter. They just maxed out what satire could do with this, and yep, there totally. you go. Yeah, and and that's been on my mind lately as a thing of like overall. It, it, we are we thinking about whether satires nailing it? Or are we just doing satires that we think are funny, or right. you know, like yes. as an overall country? I'm not talking about Cracked or anybody. Totally. You know?
1: Yeah. Someone to Harold while surveying his apartment. Any one of these poor dead animals here was a thousand times the athlete you can ever hope to be. It's a good yeah. burn for someone who yeah. thinks killing an animal with a gun makes you powerful. To be like, you know, right. pound for pound, that cheetah. cheetah is yeah. a superhero <laughs> compared to you. You just happen to have a gun, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Such a, such a nice top-down Kurt yeah. thing. Like just that perspective. Yeah. Uh, when he does go to
1: the park... Someone tells her not to worry, Penelope says, but Paul's only 12 years old. And Harold says, well, he can make the sound of human footsteps, which is a terrifying sound. That is just a great, uh, just That's, a good turn of phrase. That's yeah, really yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Any, I mean, it's true. Because I mean, it could be anything. If you hear footsteps in the dark, you don't be like, I bet it's just a 12-year-old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> At one point, early second act, Harold is chewing the guys out, Herb especially, And he uses one weird idiom, which is he's talking about all those Alice sit by the fires.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, like that's a phrase. Which is such
0: a weird, strange, like he definitely knew somebody named Alice who stayed by the camp on one of his (laughs) trips. And he was like, ah, this is a thing now. Everybody will get it.
1: Uh, when Shuttle runs in with Wanda June's cake, he goes, they had this cake. Somebody else didn't pick it up. It says, happy birthday, somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they read it and go, no, it says Wanda June. Yeah. And also, <laughs> and
0: you pointed out before, but that line about we could take off. We the could scrape it off. We could scrape it
1: off. A really funny moment to me. I'll eat the frosting, the excess <laughs> frosting. <laughs> loose leaf, in awe of how things have changed. Yeah. First of all, he often says it's a bitch. When like saying, I compare it very much to so it goes. When he's like says anything that encapsulates how there's nothing to be done. You're fucked. He just goes, yeah, it's a bitch. Yeah. I dropped that nuke on, I killed like (laughs) 600,000. It's a bitch. (laughs) So this one is, he goes, it's a bitch. You know, I used to be scared shitless. I'd say fuck or shit in public by accident. Now everybody says fucking shit, fucking shit all the time. Something very big must have happened while we were gone. <laughs> and then, yeah, when he sees Playboy, he goes, something very big involving sex must have happened while we were gone. <laughs> yes, yeah, culture scary. shifts occur over time. Right. <laughs> and I just love that his name is Loose Leaf Harper.
0: Yeah, it's meaning
1: a crazy person who complains. Like he's absent-minded and he complains. That's all he does. Loose leaf Harper. Even just feels scattered as a name.
0: Like it's really He also he also has just one line where he's thinking about his mother-in-law's death of shock at seeing him, and he just goes First Nagasaki, now this.
1: That's maybe the best laugh line in the
0: whole Funniest thing. Funniest joke in the whole thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, what happened? I went home and she had a heart attack and died, yeah. First <laughs> Nagasaki,
0: now <laughs> this.
1: Can you pass the fucking ketchup? <laughs> the new heroism is to put a village idiot into a pressure cooker, seal it up tight, and shoot him at the moon.
0: Yeah. That's uh, Harold complaining about the space program.
1: Writing off astronauts as like idiotic cowards. But it doesn't take any bravery to go (laughs) to space. We just put an idiot in a pressure cooker and fling him at the moon. I shot a bullet at an animal. (laughs) I'm way better. Also, reminded me of the great onion headline uh, from their book, Our Dumb Century holy shit, man walks on fucking moon. <laughs> yeah. it's <laughs> a great thing. Yeah.
0: What it, And him talking about astronauts, it really felt like, like I don't know if Kurt is always super successful in this play at lampooning the Hemingway kind of thing. Like I think sometimes he's just sort of presenting it without totally yeah. making fun of it to another degree. But that astronaut thing was like a perfect Colbert-ish kind of character perspective. Oh, where it's yeah. like, oh, this guy's an idiot because he thinks this like...
1: <laughs> I'm really going down a bad road here. But yeah, it's like, telling john mccain he's not a war hero because he got captured it's like a big tip off of like yeah even if you like the person i'm <laughs> referencing it's like you shouldn't have said that though right. i think almost everyone says you shouldn't have said that <laughs> don't say right. john glenn's a coward
0: like, like, yeah. come on harold pow's are still brave <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> i don't know how to say it when he abducts penelope from her job as a waitress when he orders his meal when she rides up he says Raw hamburger, please. A whole onion. I want to eat the onion like an apple. Do you understand? (laughs) (laughs) That's his pickup line. And I had to call it up because until I started dating, I ate onions like apples.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Onions are delicious. Yeah. And from like age- Super underrated.
1: Eight to 13, I ate onions like apples occasionally. I I didn't know that- you weren't supposed to eat a lot of it. I really liked them.
0: Yeah, actually, when I read him doing that, I didn't really bump on it. I was like, oh, that'd be pretty good. Raw
1: hamburger, though.
0: That's, yeah, that's a different story. Right. Yeah. Really <laughs> he also orders that at the burger place. There's also, a, there's a Penelope line where, she's speaking about Odysseus-type heroes specifically, and she says, heroes basically hate home and never stare at A there very long and make awful messes while they're there, which yeah. was like a just a good little encapsulation of like most heroes in things, but especially <laughs> Odyssey-type stories. Like, yeah. It's like that one recent Daniel Craig Bond movie where they see you see his apartment and it's like not even set up. And it's like, yeah, all oh, right, he's or, this, uh, yeah, this drunk, sad spy. He probably hasn't like set up his apartment. That makes sense.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: chow, Chow, Chow! God damn it, Nutriment. <laughs> Sorry, you need some context. Yeah, <laughs> Harold comes home and the first thing he tells is Penelope, my friends are here. Go make us a giant feast because I'm home. <laughs> right. and she goes, well, I'm so. This is all happening so fast. What are my feelings? Well, there's people in my life now. And he just goes, chow, 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 nutriment. <laughs> like, They're right. like, feed us.
0: <laughs> Mom, we want the meatloaf and Do we Do not want understand. It now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he tells
1: Paul, I'm going to have sex with your mother. Go outside and get some exercise. What kind of exercise, father? I don't know. Beat the shit out of someone that hates you. <laughs> that's, that's his so advice weird. to his son. <laughs> Watch a movie! Beat the shit out of a minority! I don't care! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Loose Leaf has a moment late in the play, and It's it's one of the better parts, where he's thinking about the ramifications of Nagasaki, like he's finally facing it for some reason. Mm-hmm. And he says to himself, I could have been the father of all those people in Nagasaki, and the mother too, just by not dropping the bomb. So Which is a cool good. realization that, like, that, like, in a in a practical sense, being a parent is bringing life into the world. But also, yeah. if you just don't take a bunch of lives out That's of the in world, in your power to take. You're bringing yeah. life into the world too, in a way. You know, It's a really totally. cool
1: maintenance at the very least. <laughs> yeah, man. Loose Leaf never seems to understand the import of what he did, but there's subtle clues that, of course, he does. Right. He can't face it. His brain's broken now. But yeah. once in a while, it'll peek through. And another one I like along those lines is someone says, well, you're the smartest guy I know or whatever. And he goes, I don't know anybody who would drop an atom bomb on a city. Is pretty dumb. So he obviously regrets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's obviously not. Like, he, he's not Harold. He doesn't be like, I have a high score. I killed more people than anyone. I'm great. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Shuttle yells, Bull Dicky. I am I'm, I'm I now, that. I'm now playing Make Me Laugh with Alex, <laughs> that old comedy. So I'm just going to yell crazy quotes from this at you and see if <laughs> what, you laugh. What did Bull Dicky mean? Shuttle finds out that Harold doesn't like him or admire him, and he goes, I feel like I, I could just shout. I could just yell something. Bull Dicky. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't know what that means Yeah, I feel like that joke probably didn't land in the performances mm-hmm. At least some of his members were like, why is it, what? But I don't know, Maybe nailed yeah. it, I don't know I think a great symbol moment
1: When Harold comes home for the first time He wanders around looking at things silently One of the first things he does is take a sword off the wall Standard symbol for violence yeah. And just say, looks at it and says, home Which is yeah. like, dope You get everything about him that you need to know Yeah, right away Harold says to Looseleaf, looking at all the dead animals, you know, this room is full of ghosts. And Looseleaf says, you're lucky. My house is going to be filled with people. <laughs> when he super doesn't want to go home and face his wife, he's going to be like, where have you been for 12 years? <laughs> you were supposed to come back with milk and shit.
0: <laughs> it reminded me of that Simpsons thing where Kirk Van Houten's like alone now and he has the race car bed. And Homer's like, I'm going to sleep in my big bed with my wife. Like, oh, yeah, I sleep in a race car. Where do you sleep? Big bed with my wife.
1: <laughs> Classic. For comparing it to more modern media, he says to Penelope, Harold does when he's wooing her for all of 45 seconds, Yeah, you're a spring box, an oryx, a gemsbok, a gazelle. Yeah. And I uh, couldn't help but think of my favorite Coen Brothers movie, Hudsucker Proxy, which has what I believe to be the most romantic kiss scene ever when he calls Jennifer Jason Lee a gazelle and then nuzzles her. Fucking great. Ah, Just watch Hudsucker Proxy. I only bring it up at every opportunity because I still know people who understand how great the Coens are but have not seen Hudsucker Proxy. And you're a fool if you haven't. I'm a fool. You're a fool. We'll get there. We'll watch
0: it off mic. That would be great. Oh, there's one one more Herald thing where Mm -hmm. they're late in the play they're telling him to cut out what he's doing and I think Penelope says, he's a child and his response is, with an iron penis three feet long. I already have that one, yeah. <laughs> such, a, <laughs> such a ridiculous
1: It's like, okay, alright <laughs> you called me daughter when you were trying to get me to marry you, now you're talking about your kid's rock hard steel rod Can, <laughs> Yeah, You you have some issues, Harold
0: <laughs> yeah, Especially bringing up anything penis related around an 11 year old boy Yeah, th- their immediate reaction is going to be to like shrink into the wall, yeah, no, like, so like No, I'm not here. Raising
1: a rifle. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm going to shoot you. No, you're not. You're going to jizz on me with your steel penis. That's what you're doing. And I love it. Oh, Dad. Dad, you're ruining my murder of you. My self-defense murder of you. Uh, I love uh, Konigswald in Heaven says, oh, by the way, we should say, the reason Hitler's in heaven is in this universe, everyone goes to heaven. Kurt's not saying Hitler's good. Yeah, just everyone ends up there. In this model, in this pocket universe... When you die, you get forgiven of your sins and you un- you become a good person automatically. You understand what you did was wrong. or If you were wrong, you go to heaven, everyone gets in. Right. So von Koenigswald says, even though, oh, and they also say, if anyone ever murders you, you should be really happy. Heaven's great, everyone loves it because you automatically get in, blah, blah, blah. So von Konigswald says, Once you're dead, you realize the stigma of murder shouldn't be there because dying's fine. So even though, like, I'm sad for the suffering I caused, obviously I'm not a Nazi in heaven, I do kind of wish I got more credit because, like, Harold's down there taking credit for how many people he murdered. I murdered way more. Yeah. And I did it the hard way. He's like, yeah. I never used a gun. I killed all kinds of people with knives and, like, in gory yeah. with surgery and, like, gross, evil shit. There should, this is where the quote starts. I think there should be a little star or something next to the names of the guys who did it the hard way. Like, on his Wikipedia entry, he wants an asterisk to say, Note, he killed people with his bare hands right. or whatever. And I just <laughs> think it's so ironic. Then a Nazi would want a star to single out
0: their identity
1: as a murderer.
0: Dark irony. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I want that. I mean, that's intentional, obviously, but I loved it. We should label me with some Now that I'm
1: dead, I want a clear identifying star to show (laughs) that I was a Nazi in life.
0: Oh, God.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Harold says to Woodley, the quote-unquote like weak, peaceful man, who is weak because he likes peace. Woodley says... You're going to have to get used to us, you know? You, the old heroes. The old heroes are going to have to get used to the new heroes who will refuse to fight. We won't fight. And he says, we, the editorial we, everything about you is the editorial we. Take that away from you and you disappear. Yeah. I don't agree with Harold, but that's a cool burn. It's a good burn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another Harold Woodley back and forth. Harold asks Woodley, what brought you back? Because Woodley comes back to the apartment toward the end. And Woodley says... The same hairy, humorless old gods who move you from hither to yon. Honor, if you like. Yeah. Just a really great, like, all these thousands of years of heralds and Odysseuses, they're all just doing that. Yeah. And and we all have at least a little of it if we're doing something bold and maybe stupid.
1: (laughs) There's no piece on the board labeled enemy and you're confused.
0: Oh, to Harold
1: yeah. being like, it's Hurt Locker. You know, you're home from the war now, right. and you're abusing your wife and son because you're only used to interfacing in that way. Right. You have no more enemies. <laughs> he at the end he says like, Woodley, let's just do what we should have done this whole time. I'll fight you for my wife. Can we fight? <laughs> no. Do you not understand? We don't do that. <laughs> and he says, but it's how you solve things. It's man to man. And he says, it's healer to killer. Is that the same thing? Yeah. Because he's a doctor. Yeah, a yeah. Good line. Good burn
0: yeah and this actually it's either after that or or around when they're talking about what the heroes will be harold says oh i'm to be left behind in primordial ooze and woodley says if you're at home in the ooze and nowhere else which is a great like you could just change man you could stop being an asshole (laughs) and then
1: when he's threatening to murder someone the person says shall i beg for mercy on my knees he says i'm about to shoot you in the head and he says if you want him to find your body that way. <laughs> oh, just good dialogue. That yeah. one, I was like taken back to Miller's Crossing. And do you know that scene? Oh, that was yeah. so good. Yeah. If you want to be found that way. <laughs> uh, there's a line, speaking of movie tie-ins, oh, I'm comical. I'm comical to you. And I just wanted to add, what am I, some kind of clown to
0: you? <laughs> and then he beats them to death with a baseball bat. Right. And then the Rolling Stones play. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Harold says, I am man as man was meant to be, a vengeful ape who murders for fun. He will soon be extinct. It's time. It's time. Or someone describes Harold that way. I can't remember if he's describing himself, but obviously that's a description of Harold. And then the other description of Harold I got out of it that I love the most that I think really sums up both sides of the equation is someone calls him, you're a living fossil like cockroaches and horseshoe crabs. And he says, yeah, we do survive, don't we?
0: <laughs> right, you might pumped. not
1: like cockroaches he's but stoked. yeah <laughs> you might not like murderers but I bet they're still here in a thousand years sorry
0: yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. probably won't get rid of all of them right it's, it's like he's threatening the future <laughs> exactly just, like, yeah I love out. that yeah. <laughs> yeah are
1: those the blurts that's all the blurts man
0: Nice. Yeah, it's My a play. It's very like that. I think it's it's not unknown to be such a blurdy thing, but it's it's all totally. dialogue. It's all, you know, it's yeah, of...
1: Yeah, I figured blurts would be the biggest section here, because, yeah, yeah, I mean, in a, in a straight dialogue book or play, what else is there? Right. All people are doing is blurting at each other. <laughs> and, <laughs> and
0: speaking of books, let's go into a segment called Recurring Characters Update. Ding, ding,
2: ding, 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 ding,
0: ding, ding, I need updates. Ding, 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 immediate updates from the Eastern Seaboard. What's your position? Left of
1: the right side, and then... And then <laughs> There's a Kurt character, but, but, oh, over and out. <laughs>
0: That's our best one of those. It's
1: our best one ever.
0: This one it doesn't have many. Colonel Looseleaf Harper will come up again in what's going to be our next episode, Breakfast of Champions. He's briefly a charter airplane pilot, so he just has like other paid pilot work in in another Kurt book. And then uh, this play has Major Siegfried von Koenigswald, who is a member of the Nazi SS, and then Cat's Cradle. Had a guy named Doctor Schlichter von Königswald, who is a doctor in the mission on um,
1: serving the Manzano family
0: right, you know. on San Lorenzo, and so it's not quite the same name, but they're both almost exactly the same name Nazi SS guys who are now in other contexts. So that's pretty close to a recurring character. About as close to I almost feel like he lost track of exactly what the name was and just <laughs> messed it up. <laughs> yeah. You know, but those are the recurring characters, and we also uh, we often that was shorter than the segment intro. Yeah, really. <laughs> the, the, that's it. Well, you know, we track them, but they don't. Yeah. They don't crop up a lot exactly. in this. And also, and I feel like it's another product of it being a play. It just doesn't have a hundred characters. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this set of people, and most of them are the Ryan family. And also, we usually do this segment. And I think we can do a little bit of a Kurt cameo segment. Can you Kurt spot cameo? him? Kurt cameo? Can anyone
1: in the class Kurt spot cameo? him? Can <laughs> anyone tell <laughs> me Kurt where cameo? Kurt is in this picture? Here. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs>
0: I'm Jessica. Great. It is sort of the odd play where there's a huge intro by the author that kind of helps you understand it. And then also I feel like aspects of Loose Leaf, I would argue, are the cameo by Kurt. I think I feel like especially oh. whenever he writes a tall skinny guy who is a little bit <laughs> unsure of his war experiences, which is what Loose Leaf is. Yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of him putting himself in the novel or in this case play as indirectly as he wants.
1: He's pretty comically dumb which yeah. is why that didn't scan for me. But I see it if, you, if you're if you looking not at that aspect of the character, every other aspect, yeah. And yeah. he says the lines that are you know are what Kurt thinks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of them. and And there's also, he's, I would say, not entirely necessary to the movement of the plot. Like you could kind of no. do this show without him, but he's there because I think Kurt likes him being there.
1: I know Odysseus had a group of guys. Was there like a standout buddy henchman for odysseus in the odyssey oh,
0: now i'm trying to sure remember. someone
1: online will remember and yeah. let us know
0: i don't think but i don't quite think so. this way i think they were yeah. just
1: like he had his group with him and they were just like a mass of dudes on the ship with him
0: yeah right. Anyway, and a lot of them get eaten by monsters well i know yeah. he gets when he gets
1: home i think he's alone like he's the last so, yeah. one left yeah
0: so this one, this one has a bumbling kurt pilot going along and then we're booming through segments. That was a brace we're of just, segments real fast, yeah. Uh, and this next segment is called, Vana what?
2: Finally!
0: Vana whoo. Finally we're going to hold this guy accountable. <laughs> yeah, because this is a, a segment, if you've never heard the show before, where we pick out things that maybe are objectionable or not great or surprising to modern audiences from mm-hmm. Kurt's work. Not even necessarily to judge them, you know? Just to find them and say, hey, this is it. We
1: all have implicit biases, I believe. And yep. you check them, not because you hate the thing that you're analyzing, but in order to have a clear view of what is going on in the world and yeah. what you think. <laughs> yeah, The truth is like the dark. It scares you witless, but in time, you see things clear and stark. Holy cow. I just made that up off the top of my head.
0: No, that's pretty. an Elvis Costello line. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And I think in this play, the big one is the entire Harold Ryan character is definitely something that Kurt wants to satirize and mock right. and take down. It's hard to sift through because he really you, goes over the top with it.
1: But you know, he doesn't mean those things, just the opposite. Right. Uh, yeah. I try to be aware, you know, it's very important to be aware of what a writer is using for effect and then the parts that you think, oh, I think they are building that message. Yeah. Some of the shit Harold Ryan says, we're not going to say. Because it's obviously Ivana what to drop the N-word, but that's how he's using it. Right. You're supposed to hate Harold Ryan. So I wouldn't call that a what so much.
0: Yeah. I think, yeah, everything Harold Ryan says is something that Kurt, the author, (laughs) does not believe and believes is offensive. (laughs) At the same time, I think just like pure writing technique, I think he overdoes it. Like, I think he could have ramped it down a little bit, even for audiences then, and it would have still come across.
1: Well, the quote in question that you didn't say is, you're a woman, aren't you? Then we have a cook. Cook, by God, you're the N-word now, <laughs> uh, right? Oh, oh man! Right.
0: And he's, he's our podcast
1: just got canceled.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's like, and he's like, accidentally quoting a John Lennon song that will exist <laughs> yeah. about yeah. women in the world. Yeah, you know, and that's yeah. So there's a lot of that in this play, and and you know, it's there because yeah. I did think throughout this, like, is he. He wants to satirize this Hemingway perspective and and also just an overall aggressive male perspective that's out there. I think some of the time he's really nailing, making fun of it, and other times he's just presenting it without... Following it up with enough jokes or craft or skill to make it like interesting, yeah. you know, it's just there and it's sure. bold. and it's. But
1: he's uh, everything. He's racist. He's homophobic. All the things you'd expect from Harold.
0: Yeah, doesn't believe in consent. Yeah, much. He says you don't. Uh, she says
1: I don't want to have sex right now. You don't know you want it. That's how you're built. Right. And then his first <laughs> wife in heaven says. He would come home and he would tell me that he had just killed something and he had now earned the reward that only a woman could give him, and then he'd tear off my clothes. He would carry me into the bedroom, telling me to scream and kick. That was very important to him. I did it. I tried to be a good wife. I was like, that is a chilling description of raping your wife. Yep. <laughs> like that is that is rough, man. Yeah. They say, what are you gonna do now after Penelope leaves him? I don't know, marry the first whore who's nice to me, I guess.
0: Right. Jesus.
1: like dude i can stop because these aren't real vanawatts because he doesn't mean them but yeah yeah, you're right he goes over the top i also think i also thought it was a legitimate vanawat that as usual penelope could have been more fleshed out yeah Um, but the real penelope in the odyssey is not that fleshed out but neither is odysseus really
0: (laughs) yeah that's right and there is one little bit where in a stage direction penelope comes back out of her room dressed for a date with, I think it was, she was going out with Herb. And Kurt says in the description that she's wearing barbaric jewelry, which mm-hmm. is actually it is something he says in the short story, Miss Temptation, too, about the female character jewelry. But I was like, that's a little bit weird and gross. And, I don't know. well, it's, in that,
1: it's interesting in that same across the page, he gives her, oh, you mean like characterizing jewelry as a tool women use to yeah,
0: hit, uh, yeah, hit men things. over the head
1: and take them into their caves or and, whatever? And
0: that any kind that's of jewelry would be barbaric. Right. Like, There's just some weirdness to it.
1: It's weird, and I also thought the fact that there is a moment, I didn't write the quote down, but there's a moment in the across the page where she's given depth, like where you get an insight into her thought process, and it's sophisticated. And yeah. it's the only time, because she's fairly straightforward and simple-minded throughout the play. And I just thought it was kind of a Vana what? That's like, you couldn't reveal that in a line? It's almost yeah. like it was an across the page that gives the actress performing the role enough to know your character is not completely hollow. You do have thoughts and understand the, what's going on. Right. But it's all on your performance. It's only in your eyes and stuff. Like, you, <laughs> they didn't give her any lines where she comes off as comprehending what's going on, really. Yeah. All she does is finally realize that it would be nice to not be abused, so she goes away from her abusive husband. But she doesn't have – like, it takes Dr. Woodley, a man who's a physician, to come in and be like, let me explain. You represent an old way of interfacing the world through violence that is becoming (laughs) moot. Right. You could have let Penelope know that and explain that, but – yeah, I think she's, she explains some classic, things, I think, pretty sure. effectively. Sure, I'd just but. say it's classic Vonnegut pitfall, and pitfall of any male writer in the 50s and 60s is
0: she's a yeah, little victim. under-colored. Right, yeah, yeah.
1: This is just another... This is not a Vonnegut because it's just an offensive thing Harold says, but again, even when he's being a monster, I think Vonnegut has good turns of phrase that are objectively good, even though the sentiment is horrible. Right. Yeah, he writes He touches well. his it's wife and he says, this is now good, for you see ideally... The body of a woman should feel like a hot water bottle filled with a Devonshire cream. You feel like a paper bag crammed with curtain rods. <laughs> oh, boy. And yeah, yeah you, as so you weird. pointed out, I just think there's such colorful turns of phrase. Don't lecture me on race relations. I've killed every kind of man and fucked every kind of woman, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you didn't say the end of that monologue is, you know, if I'd been to the South Pole, I bet there'd be a lot of penguins around who look like me you going to fuck all the penguins? What kind <laughs> of brag is that? You're going to go to the – and fuck right. all the penguins. Okay. Bizarre. Yeah. And then the last – well, you're hollow like a woman. <laughs> but uh the last thing I'll say that I actually thought was a legit what where I was like, oh, Curdy, was the blue, the blue soup they drink that made them just like – just two more sleepy Indians.
2: Just the <laughs> characterization
1: of – Native peoples is like sitting in their hut with a drum, chilling out in the sun.
2: Yeah. And
1: we've come to learn that that's a problematic uh, right. characterization of people going through dire poverty. <laughs> it's like, they just right. chill out in All the sun. Over the world. Right. They love fishing. <laughs> no, nah, it's kind of rough being an Indian in most parts of the world.
0: Yeah, and claiming any culture is lazy. Is right. Quite, yeah. <laughs> just right. rough.
1: Although blue soup is cool. Some Star Wars vibe there. They described it. Yeah, like they subsisted yeah. entirely on this pale blue soup that is just it's like
0: oh, on Tatooine is never oh. explained. Yeah, were you, <laughs> yeah, were you at a
1: moisture farm? Do
0: you yeah. know why? In both, there's
1: three acts, and at the end of Act One and the end of Act Two, Harold turns to the audience and says, "End of Act One. <laughs> end of Act Two. Do you know yeah. what'd you get out of that?
0: I think he's tra- he's trying to do uh, just a. a little bit of a brechtian thing like well he does at the beginning where uh they are just presentational about this is what the play is about this is sure J-M. i almost feel like kurt realized oh i only really do that at the very beginning <laughs> oh, I, I guess if i do it at the end of acts, it now in. it feels like it's a, a style and not just being, being yeah lazy <laughs> speaking
1: of which you're gonna hear pages flip because i have a real book this time does he say i missed to someone or to the audience Harold enters from the corridor, shaking his head. I missed. That's all. Okay.
0: Yeah, I didn't I, know. Probably director's so, choice, actually. Yeah, because be I like, could easily that'd be like a big thing to totally decide as a director. Yeah,
1: just walking slowly all the way out to center stage as if he's going to take a bow, but looking at the audience and saying,
0: <laughs> "I missed," you know. <laughs> and then just that Porky Pig Looney
1: Tunes thing. Ex- again, or, like, or like, directing the no, camera and then a Looney Tunes thing. And then another gunshot. Once you, yeah. can, Once everything's obscured. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of it being a play, I think we can go into another segment called The Meat. What does that have to do with speaking of a play? There's a. I think we talked about a lot of the meat of this already. I do, in general, as a, oh, I'm a Kurt fan. I feel like there's an overall question of, do, are his plays relevant? Sure. Or are they oh. useful to his uh, progression as an artist? I'm not questioning
1: that. I'm questioning your segue. You said, speaking of it's a play, here comes the
0: meat. <laughs> Yeah, it explain wasn't Explain the link. Okay. It was, then we it was explain uh, the sausage link. A tough piece of meat. Ooh, <laughs> hey, there we go. But I do, not only is, I think, this play a relatively worthwhile piece of Kurt writing, but also in reading his letters and uh, tracking his progression, he does a lot of telling people that he's going to be a playwright, or like, like sure. he'll do a bunch of work on a novel or on short stories and then be like, ah, I'm just going to go write plays now. And I think, if nothing else, as a, he did it because he... Wasn't necessarily very productive as a playwright. This Wanda June is pretty much the main play we have from him, but it seems like it was very productive in terms of giving him a mental break from novels in order to then get back at them fresh, that kind totally. of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the segment accepted. A, it's basically
0: just me doing a small speech, yeah. I guess, is the segment. But were there any other like neat things you wanted to?
1: Uh, I have questions for you. Yeah. Cause I'm always interested in your take on stuff. Yeah. Did you have a theory for the Woody Woodpecker bit? So for people who didn't read it, there's several yeah. blackouts in the play at various instances where the across the pages, then we hear Woody Woodpecker go, ha, yeah. ha, 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 ha. And there's even one, Then it develops in the middle before the final scene. There's a blackout where it says we hear Woody Woodpecker. Right. Then there's silence. Then a baby cries. Then more silence. Then Woody Woodpecker and a gunshot, implying someone shot Woody Woodpecker, I guess. Then yeah. the scene starts.
0: Yeah, I what? Was, what? I was what? totally confounded by it. Oh, okay. I don't. Well, also, I, as I don't a pop know, culture like,
1: reference, I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of it.
0: Yeah, I don't like know Woody Woodpecker cartoons. I don't I, other than what he looks like and that one catchphrase. I don't know anything about him. I don't right. know what his yeah. deal is as a character. But also, it made no sense to me as a part of the play. I I, I had I just like skipped them mentally. I then I guess I'm only
1: bringing it. it up as an open question because I would love. Uh, yeah, if anyone, people who read along, if anyone has a theory, post that shit. Facebook yeah. slash Kurt guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you guys have supplied many very useful or awesome theories about things, and one of you probably gets it, but I have no sure idea what the Woody Woodpecker stuff is for.
1: Similar question I will throw at you and at the audience as well, if you don't give me the answer I seek. <laughs> Why is the title of the play Happy Birthday, Wanda, Jim"? June? uh, What does the cake symbolize and why make it so central that it's the title? Or what's going on there?
0: Yeah, well, I think it symbolizes something that is more of an overall Kurt theme that the play isn't really otherwise about, about sort of the randomness of life, how tragedy will come out of nowhere, and how we need to kind of celebrate what we can. Oh, I guess, well, we do have a cake like that. At least that was a thing. But the rest of the play isn't about that. So, it's, I'm wondering it was like, like kind of a straight something about
1: scraping our name off. You're taking something meant to celebrate a continuing life. That life was snuffed out. And then you're like, stem selling it by taking off any factors that make it clearly associated to that person. oh yeah, and celebrating someone else's life. I don't know. I feel like there's some commentary in there that I'm still not fully getting,
0: yeah, it might be. it all it almost felt like a high- ho or something. yeah, like a, and and it's also probably the most fun thing you could call a play of right, all the elements tr- uh, of yeah otherwise the play would just be like herald be? the monster or you know whatever <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. i don't know <laughs> it doesn't sound like Homecoming a great show. something yeah. yeah but it actually i had read this once before a long time ago and i think i remember the first time i read it i felt like wanda june was really random and like i'd even have trouble in my mind tracking that this was the play about what it's about because there's also that's this the title. title yeah
1: the title is like a radiohead uh, song title it's not immediately intuitively clear which one you you're like oh yeah 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 the one with the guy the hunter guy
0: yeah but uh (laughs) but she worked a lot better for me this time around i don't know why i think maybe it just like stitched the overall progression of the show together better for me or the themes or something i don't know yeah I, i was fine with it yeah nice but yeah. And yeah, you guys might have something else too, but I don't know. I, maybe it, maybe sure it's do. just the gag of her being like the, the foul bachelor frog kind of guy, where he's like, oh, I'll just scrape it off and then it's a cake, yeah. you know, Then I got it, you yeah. know.
1: And also, Kurt, by his own admission, some of the stuff maybe he would have changed if he lived longer or revisited it because yeah. a lot of the decisions shifted over and over and over. I thought in the intro it was amazing. He says he like, pours the praise onto Michael J. Kane, who helped him with the play for all of his good advice about how to write a play and how plays and stories are structured. yeah, This is Kurt Vonnegut. So I feel like that's super (laughs) high praise. He's saying, this guy helped correct me on my story structure. I looked this guy up. His biggest credit is he wrote a few episodes of Gilligan's Island. It's just amazing to me that Vonnegut is admiring this. I think just because he's scared to leave novels and go into a new medium, and he's like, this guy is from that medium, so I trust anything you would say. That's fascinating. But it's like, you're Kurt goddamn Vonnegut. Like, if you don't (laughs) like the traditional rules of playwriting, invent new ones. Like, you're smart and wise. I'm going to want to hear what you're going to want to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I just
1: think it's it's also cool to know that someone I look up to so much looked up to one of the Gilligan's Island writers, because it's (laughs) like, everyone's just a person, man.
0: Well, and also, I like that he... Probably didn't fully take that guy's advice because there's still curdy structure things. In particular, characters just telling you what this is about and who they sure. are immediately. Well, yeah, like, but that's I not thought something that people usually do. The
1: one interlude where Paul builds a radio out of coconuts to contact the, <laughs> uh, Penelope at the park, I thought was a, like an obscure reference. You know,
0: yeah, the theme song was real jamming. Yeah,
1: Harold's constantly hitting hitting people on the head with his fishing cap. <laughs> I'm out of references from Gilligan's Island.
0: Yeah, I'm not very steeped in that I don't know. <laughs> Let's go on to another segment. This is called Kurt Vonnegrades. Mm-hmm. grades. Scared of the grades. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you. Yeah, I'm scared. Uh, also, if this, grade. Is, if this is your first uh, one of these, Kurt, in his own autobiographical work, <laughs> Palm Sunday, gave his own writing letter grades relative to itself, and so we give him letter grades too. And he gave Happy Birthday, Wanda June, a D. He In this set of 13 works he graded, he only gave Happy Birthday, Wanda June and his novel Slapstick a D, and that's the lowest grade he gave anything. And in the intro of this, he talks about what a terrible writer he feels like he is on this. So it's not totally surprising, but he really uh, savaged this thingy. uh, I think it must have been colored
1: by his experience of working on it, because if you do feel the need to revise something 20 times, probably instill the thought in you that it's not your best work ever. Or if you yourself feel unsure about how it should end and then you end up going with someone else's idea for how it should end, maybe you feel like, Definitely. It's, well, it wasn't my best because when I thought of sirens, I knew what, what was going to happen, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he in his letters around the time, he says uh, he wrote one in March of 1971 to the writer Jose Donoso. He says, My writing is going badly. I had a play which ran for about 150 performances in New York. It was a shabby piece of work, I have decided. I wish, like hell, I could do something good. Like, just feels fundamentally down on himself. And also, in a lot of his own letters about all this stuff, he talks about his own reviews. And I think he's someone who, like, if, if he wrote for the internet today, he would read all of his comments. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the kind of creator who needed to know what the reviews and comments totally. were and stuff. And so I'm sure this play that was being revised while it was being performed, not even in like, uh, you know, previews or something, like the finished product was being fixed all the time. Right. You so could I'm come sure a week later and see sl- different plot events.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, you could come back to the play and things would have changed
0: yeah he is even, weird. He wrote to his friend Knox Berger at the end nineteen seventy He said, Oh, I hope you'll you and your wife will go see my play again as a guest. It's so much better than it was on opening night <laughs> like oh well <laughs> uh, great he mu- Why'd you invite us? I yeah. feel like he was either guilty or frustrated or something about how it was not right when it went up, sure, you know? so yeah,
1: well, what do you give it?
0: I think I would give it like a b minus yeah, uh, I'd
1: go solid B yeah' I think he's wrong. I think his his perception is being colored by like how hard it was to mount yeah. but pound for pound it's got so many kurt blarts that just makes it good
0: <laughs> yeah that's the that's the part that really sings and, I, and mm-hmm. it's also tackling masculinity and in a way that he doesn't quite hit so head-on and mm-hmm. much of his other stuff so it's a it's a perspective on his philosophy that you don't really get from his other novels yeah, yeah. the plotting is fine and clearly based on what it's what it's adapting with the odyssey adapting to an extent although it's uh, a
1: little clunky like structurally uh, i agree with him that that's why it's not an a like because the wanda june interludes are interesting and make points but it never becomes fully clear that they needed to be there in that structure yeah they're just interesting interludes and the structure is very 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 simple yeah it's, it's the dialogue that gets you For sure.
0: Yeah. And it's a simple structure. And and like I said, I don't think he's super effectively satirical of horrible men all the time. I think sometimes you're just seeing a horrible man being horrible. (laughs)
1: Like
0: a a B minus might be a little, I might go down to C plus B minus, but like it's, it's there's a lot to recommend it in spite of it not being well, if you perfect. go down,
1: I'm going up to a B plus to keep the average the same, Whoa. so it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> but D is way too hard on himself. Definitely. It's, it's a functional thing with a lot of neat moments.
1: I find Ds are usually way too hard, in my experience.
0: <laughs> I am walking into... <laughs> pun after pun it's true I am like I'm like the stepping on rakes of puns today and they're just all happening <laughs> yeah.
1: I practiced that for hours say, as a child I, I can perfectly mimic
0: it I should have guessed that you would have it dumb
1: you would have it Fun fact we learned in the cracked podcast where we got to interview some of the Simpsons writers, they fucking hate that bit. Or at least yeah, that's Mike Reese does. Cause they felt totally similar to how Kurt doesn't like this just because he knows that it wasn't the decision he wanted. They felt compelled to put it in because an episode came up 60 seconds short. short. Yeah. And so it's like, well, there's that scene where he steps on a rake. Could you loop the animation and have him step on 15 rakes? So it does that thing where he gets funny and then not funny and funny again. And they're <laughs> like, I guess. Right. I guess we can just fill our episode with filler if we're giving up, <laughs> and then everyone I know—that's like in their top ten bits of all time. Yeah, that's it's an for all-time for sure. Yeah,
0: in one of the all-time episodes. <laughs> it's like <great>. it's yeah, <laughs> it was the best thing. So you never know, Kurt. People like Wanda June.
1: Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
0: Screw your grades. Yeah. And we go to another segment, which is a slight variation of one we often do. It's called Drama Time. Ah, no. I'm talking to a skull on a stage. <laughs> no.
2: Oh,
0: it was my son. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, This is We uh, usually do movie time with uh, a book because we're like thinking straight to movies. How do we do it? Uh, Part and of my brain one... did
1: freak the fuck out because I was like, drama time? I who don't know what that segment is.
0: Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> it's okay. like movie time. It's like movie time. Oh, okay. Uh, and actually this play was made into a movie like right away after it was done. It, when it was, uh, I believe, 1971, it was starring Rod Steiger and Susanna York and a lot of known people. I could not find this movie anywhere in any format, so I have not seen it. And I assume you haven't either, because it's probably not readily available. Nope. And it was also critically panned, did poorly commercially, and Kurt tried to get his name taken off of it.
1: Will not be in the footnotes, obviously. <laughs> so. Hey, if you find it somehow,
0: don't feel free to, yeah,
1: send it to us. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm interested in watching it to see how bad it is and why
0: yeah I would I would absolutely watch it, but it seems to be uh, not uh, not very available. And also, there's a, a, in Palm Sunday, Kurt talks about trying to get his name taken off it, and he said, this proved impossible, however. I alone had done the thing the credits said I had done. I had really written the thing.
1: <laughs> Which is a great self Oh, it's suck to watch a shitty movie, and the credit goes by, and you have sole writer credit, and you're like, well, but, no, but, but. I don't know who, but someone else wrote, I didn't do it. Who <laughs> even, <Yeah>. right.
0: <laughs> And he's probably right. They probably didn't even change it much. Like, they probably just sure, did what yeah. he said, you know? Mm. But so anyway, so the movie probably doesn't recommend itself very well. But we're fun people. So we've thought about... We, <laughs> are we? Uh, I say yes. Yeah. You're wearing a, a great hat today. People <laughs> great, can't see it. You. That's really cool. But anyway, it's. I thought it'd be fun to think about, like, what would be a better cast for this. And also, if there are other Kurt pieces that would be good plays. Yeah. You know, like, what should be on the stage? Which we've talked about a little bit before, especially with the short stories, but...
1: Well, I did cast it, but I did cast it. I'm realizing now as a film. Meaning, oh. I mean, a lot of these people have some roots in theater. But you know what I didn't do?
0: I think uh, it works it as works Dr.
1: Woodley. I want Tony Award-winning actor. Blah blah blah. Like
0: it can be. It can yeah. be movie time. Yeah, casting. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fine.
1: It's gonna be famous people that the yeah. people know.
0: Yeah, let's do uh, the let's do the cast stuff. Okay, I, you cast say the character, is...
1: and then we'll both we'll both cast. How about that? But yeah. you, you go through the character list.
0: Well, my, my casting is sort of minimal. I'm super focused on Penelope. I think that's mm-hmm. like the key role. That's the one right. I got to do right. And I think I would pick Jessica Chastain. I think she's ah. a really fantastic actress all of the time. And I think she can do like hurt and wounded and dramatic yes. kind of thing. And she was in, um uh, they made a movie of Coriolanus she's in. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I've yeah. seen
1: that actually. Yeah. It's good. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So she can do, do full on theater and, and nail it. Totally. I'm on a kick that I think a lot of people
1: are on right now, but I'd go Janelle (laughs) Monet. She's awesome. Oh, (laughs) Uh, More for Moonlight than for Hidden Figures, but
0: yeah,
1: yeah, I just think, especially in Moonlight, which was certainly my favorite film last year, she arguably one of the few, if there are any flaws. I don't really count it as a flaw because every film has to focus on certain aspects and therefore ignore other aspects of life. But one of the flaws was, as we're talking about today, her character is flushed out, but could have been even more flushed out, but there's only so much time to spend on a movie and blah, 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 blah. The point being that I think a lot of what came out of that character came from Janelle Monae putting it into the performance. Yeah. More so than, I mean, the script is obviously friggin' phenomenal, but her character of all the characters in the movie had to get the most across in the least amount of time, and she did that. And I think Penelope has the same challenge. Because the play is as good as Penelope can be sophisticated, and she doesn't have the lines to do the work for her. It has to be her performance.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah really rarely does she have the text helper. It's like he gives her a really couple hammer blows the... in
1: the final scene.
0: But before yeah. that,
1: she's kind of just like, I'm just thinking about this. I'm not going to say what I think yet. I'm just thinking. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's do uh, Harold next. Who would you have
1: for Harold? You go first. Who played Maude in Harold and Maude? <laughs> Been waiting for that joke to come up. So. Obviously, we Nick Offerman or I or his evil. Yeah. I actually don't think he has the range personally.
0: I, no, I and think, no, I don't think he'd intended. quite fit. I think, it, yeah,
1: but mainly because he looks like the guy in the pictures in my book. <laughs> but like I, his evil twin, Dick Offelman, I think could do it. <laughs> Dick Offelman. All right, that was my pre-planned, my only pre-planned pun of the evening is now dispensed. <laughs> so my actual decisions, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shotgun blast you with four and not explain them because I think they're self-evident. Sure. And then I want to, I'm sure you're, you are able to actually make your mind up. But I could go with any of the above. Jeff Bridges, now that he's old Jeff Bridges. Okay, yeah. <laughs> True Grit Jeff Bridges. Ian McShane, the aforementioned Al engine. Kathy Bates...
0: Oh, I think would
1: be the interesting cross casting, because man, she can be as forceful and bloodthirsty as you need her to be. Obviously, and has done it time and again. Yeah. And then I realized I only picked this person because thinking of Kathy Bates made me remember her turn on the office, which in turn made me remember the other person who is meant to be an arrogant prick in this life, James Spader.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) Like
1: and I also love James Spader because he plays pompous arrogant pricks but he's a short fat bald guy like yeah. I think that would be doubly cool for Harold to like be a dude with an obvious hairpiece <laughs> who comes in and is
0: like not oh, that weird. tall
1: but is bossing everyone around and murdering everyone
0: That's kind of like mine. I would I would pick Michael Gambon.
1: yeah refresh me
0: he's uh he plays um dumbledore after richard harris and he's in um really uh, he does a lot of theater i saw him in a play in london and he was amazing he was in a pinter play where he was like really scary despite being a schlubby ish kind of guy
1: okay because i was gonna ask like do you feel like he's too old to be you're like you're scared he's gonna murder his wife on stage
0: i sort of want him to be too old Oh, really? Like, so You'd it's think like an that's even Because, yeah.
1: I mean, he is the aging soldier. He's not the soldier in his prime, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like a good, good
0: fallen apart uh, jerk. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that'd be fun. Also, Loose Leaf, I think I would like mm-hmm. to be John Hawks, because I cast John Hawks as all Vonnegut's standards. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> and I think he'd fit the look and be a good kind of that character.
1: I was going with Loose Leaf, not as Vonnegut, or because I didn't make that connection until you brought it up, but as just who's the best moronic dope guy who seems like a cute puppy dog who follows you around even though you kick him. So I ended up on Will Farrell or Patrick Stewart. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. That's a real weird pick. And again, I think <laughs> really I'm weird. just I'm being influenced by because I just did Green Room and Logan. And yeah. so I'm in a phase where I'm like, well Patrick Stewart can do anything. Literally anything. Right. <laughs> he kicks ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like I yeah. So just for range. But I think Will Farrell's the safer bet. Like, Will Ferrell is what I was imagining when I was reading that oh, type of energy. Yeah. I thought Loose Leaf was like a really dull buzz, all that, like, Will Ferrell can be, where he's just like, Yeah, you could do that. I don't know.
0: I dropped the bomb. You know, like,
1: <laughs> that's how I was envisioning him.
0: Yeah, I buy that. Yeah. For the rest of the people, I honestly, I didn't, I only had one other strong thought, which is uh, the actress Diane Wiest was in... She she was the understudy. Yeah, so in the actual production of this in 1970 and 1971, she was the female understudy. She was uh, like 22 her name is misspelled in my copy of it because she was that like unknown and she went on to win a couple oscars and and emmys and it'd be an amazing actress so she should get some kind of great quick role and i thought mildred would be a good like like, just because she's earned it yeah yeah like bring her back like oh can you believe it from all this time yeah
1: yeah i and i didn't think we were gonna mention it but since we're mentioning the least or as it says in my book diddy west i just want to recommend the sketch-driven movie The Ten based on The Ten Commandments featuring Diane Weist as herself in one of the funniest movies. Oh, just herself? (laughs) Yeah, Diane Weist plays herself. Paul Rudd is having a relationship with Diane Wiest. <laughs> and Paul Rudd's not himself. Paul Rudd's a character. Yeah. It's very confusing.
0: It's a movie a that is... What a touchstone to choose of like a real celebrity. Yeah. Is it's Diane a,
1: Wiest. It's incredible. It's a segmentized movie from most of the team that did Wet Hot American Summer, if you haven't heard of it, that has 10 sketches and an 11th like framing device. And they wrote it in a weekend. Like cool. they, the writers each wrote one segment. Yeah. Over a weekend And just made the movie And somehow It's one of my all time Funniest movies of all time For me That's I cool. love it Yeah And it's got Weist. Weist. It has a song Brings About breaking Wiest. up With Diane Wiest <laughs> <laughs> I had to break it off yeah. With Wiest
0: <laughs> And yeah, and the rest of the cast. There's a lot of kids and a Nazi and, and suitors, so I, I didn't worry about it too much.
1: Oh, I have some, but I will say, under Wanda June, I wrote some cute kid who gives a shit. Like, there's always some cute little girl that Hollywood finds. I don't know.
0: Like, whenever I try to do this <laughs> with like a kid role, I literally think of just the first kid, the most recent kid I saw right. in the thing. You're always like, I'm just oh like, shit, I, I don't know, Asa Butterfield, Dakota Lane?
1: Fanning, and <laughs> like, what's his name? Are too old now. So yeah, Haley Joel right. and Dakota are too old.
0: Who's the kid now? I don't even. I don't keep track right. of who's like, the kids only actual casting directors know this i don't know
1: (laughs) although for paul the little boy i thought maybe ashton sanders from a couple years ago that's the guy that played chiron in the middle section of
0: moonlight yeah i really like your like very minority and and female driven cast of this that's very fun
1: i didn't even mean to when i was thinking about it because like i said i try to cast based on the actor's energy but if you do make penelope african-american and their son mixed race i guess because she's with harold yeah it adds a bunch of interesting layers that make everything even worse i don't know if you want to do that but right
0: Uh, yeah but i was just thinking actor's energy
1: in moonlight man i mean again he gets so much out with so little dialogue in the middle section is where he says the least i think of any of the three sections so ashton sanders and then for woodley i got jimmy stewart (laughs) yeah that makes sense (laughs) yes You can't come in here and just kill everything. We're gonna get you out of here, Mister Mister Harold. Yeah,
0: Mr. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's almost as, there's a, a Western called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That's my recommended reading. Don't jump to it. It's, I, or uh, do it's uh, fine. I just it's the Stewart <laughs> that Stewart would be. That's
1: exactly why I cast him in this. Ah, you know, dang it! You so can explain same. why, or I'll explain How why. How did when we, we both wavelength it? that movie? Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, Konigswald Christoph Waltz because it's a gimme.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, right. it's the German. <laughs> Best Nazi. It's, who's the last German I saw? Like, which Inglorious Bastards character right. will I? <laughs>
1: and the reason I'm dragging the segment out is I do think I have one more that will make you go, ooh. Oh, and do. that's Shuttle. Shuttle, yeah. The vacuum cleaner salesman who himself is sad and broken inside, but basically is in love with Harold, right? right. Ben Foster. Oh. Ah? From
0: uh, Hell or High Water?
1: Keller high water, although yeah. I was thinking more of his role in 310 to Yuma, where he clearly evinced with no lines about it that he's in love with Russell Crowe. <laughs> and then I also just saw him in one of his very early roles where he does, he has an arc on six feet under, he dates Claire. And again, it's this role where he says, I'm gay, but you can tell from fucking second one that he is in love with her only by the way he looks at her. And I just think that's an amazing thing for like. Any actor, he nails, I've seen him nail that over and over, and I want to see Shuttle up on stage when Harold's back is turned, looking at him like, oh shit, he's in love with that dude. (laughs) Like, I want that dichotomy.
0: (laughs) That would make it way more interesting. That would be cool, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of uh, related readings, let's get into the segment for related reading. Okay. Well, I had three, but now I have two. Reading, 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 reading. (laughs) Reading slash, watching slash, listening. Yeah. Talk about the man who shot Liberty balance. Okay. There's a... (laughs) Movie called The Man
1: Who Shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> if you're a Western buff, you've, of course, seen it. But a lot of people aren't, and a lot of people uh, don't take the time to watch old, old movies because a lot of them have become dated and boring. I get right. that. I see yeah. old movies where I go, this has no relevance to anything, right. and they didn't figure out how editing works yet, so it's fucking boring. Yeah, and the pace but, is
0: slow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's always a joy. To realize that some old movies still fucking rule and like are just as good, even all the way back to the black and white era. You just need someone to tell you which ones are going to hold up. And The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance totally holds up. Incredible Western, made sort of in the afternoon. They weren't super old, but in the afternoons of Jimmy Stewart's and John Wayne's careers. I'm not going to say who plays The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance because that's the twist. But the setup is... Basically, Wanda June. I mean, the moral thematic setup. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have to tell you this, Alex,
0: because you keyed into that, obviously. But <laughs> Yeah, it's about what kind yeah. of a man to be.
1: It's about what kind of a man and to Stewart be. Stuart and
0: Wayne are arguing for...
1: And it's about both. It's the idea that, of course, the Wild West did need... The John Wayne type of cowboy. Yeah. Or, I mean, need is a relative term, but regardless, the Wild West town that comes into existence would not exist in this form without John Wayne, who ran the Indians off their land and shot any criminals that came around. Yep, you're right. Now that the town exists... No one wants you here. (laughs) Jimmy Stewart comes in and is a lawyer who's bringing the first court system to the town, and everyone wants that. They want to be a real town. And it's the whole idea. I mentioned in Allison's story that's about this too, but it's one of my favorite themes where does a soldier go when we don't need soldiers anymore? Because the whole goal of being a soldier is to make everything so safe that you don't need soldiers anymore. Right. Well, then everyone hates you because you're like gross because you killed a bunch of things, which we no longer understand how to do and we think it's weird.
0: Or or (laughs) we regret that our life now needed some of that and so we like hate you reminding us of it. Right.
1: You're the guy we paid to kill all the Native Americans. Now we feel guilty that we killed them all? We blame you. It's weird to be that guy who's like, but 50 years ago, you were all cheering me for doing this. Right. Also, you might feel guilty, but it's objectively true that your town wouldn't exist if I didn't do that. So he's Harold. He's Harold Ryan. Yeah. And Jimmy Stewart is Dr. Woodley, who says, no, we're going to use courts and make peace now, and you need to leave. And they fight over a woman who represents, I guess, whoever wins the woman was right about the argument, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's still a movie from the 60s. So, Yeah. Yeah. So there's a prize woman, and you, you're seeing is is the prize woman is the Penelope going to be won by by the gun or by the book of law?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good, That's great, yeah. yeah. And
1: the yeah. ending rips your heart out. The ending's fucking great.
0: I'll uh, do a movie one. It's sort of a pair. One of them is the movie "Oh Brother Where Art Thou"?
1: Coen right. Brothers' movie,
0: you mm-hmm. probably know it. And it's about the Odyssey. And then there's also a movie called Sullivan's Travels which is by Preston Sturgis from the early 40s.
1: Also in my top 10 movies of all time.
0: Right. And it's also sort of a take on the Odyssey, but very, very funny about it and very yeah. backward about it a lot of the time. It also, it, just trivia, or if you're interested in Sullivan's Travels, the main character keeps trying to make a movie out of a gripping novel about the Great Depression called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is where the Coen brothers got the title of that movie.
1: And uh, Preston Sturgis, the writer director, wrote that movie about the difficulty he was having writing a different screenplay. Yeah. It escapes me, but he had an assigned project. And he was sick of being pigeonholed as a writer of light comedies. So the movie's about a director who doesn't want to be pigeonholed as a writer <laughs> of light comedies and tries to make a serious movie but doesn't know what he has to say that is meaningful or real. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny. And it, yeah, it's And t- talking about freaking movies holding up, dude. Palm Beach Story, also a Preston Sturgis. Still uh-huh. as funny. Okay, like you could watch The Hangover. Which is not the best comedy of all time, but is very strong. Yeah. And then watch Palm Beach Story back to back, and be like, I just saw two great comedies that made me laugh all the way through the whole time. And this, and, and they're it's both so long. Ago. They're both black and white movies from like the 30s to the 50s. It's incredible. Yeah. Preston Sturges has two movies in my top 10. Oh, that's. And great. they're both black and white, out. and that makes me classy and smart. <laughs> <laughs> and correct. Yeah. Palm Beach Story is also good. I have no related reading. Oh, I do. I have reading. But you should see it if you can. But if you can't see it, I suggest you read the play, The Last Living Black Man in the Whole Entire World by Susan Laurie Parks. Cool title. Yeah. She writes incredible avant-garde, semi-abstract theater pieces (laughs) that are – I think she also – I might be butchering the name, but she wrote another play I really love called The Death of Abraham Lincoln in the footnotes it will be linked to with the proper name but regardless Susan Laurie Parks writes some of the most exciting theater coming out right now so if uh, you know I mean she's alive and writing so if you if you love theater but you've only read Arthur Miller and Pinter and blah 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 and you're like who's like writing plays like what plays happen now she does and she's both written classic plays that have been around forever but she's writing new plays that are fucking amazing too so read anything by Susan Laurie Parks I especially recommend The Last Living Black Man in the whole. Entire world, I didn't mean to say like Don Pardo <laughs> announcing <laughs> the, the cast world. of SNL, but yeah, Counting
0: Crows. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> no, great. I guess I'll because I have a, a theater recommendation too, and this is overall check out neo-futurist Theater. There is specific the movement.
1: Is that a movement or a group? A theater group.
0: It's kind of both. It's somewhat named after the futurist movement, who were like Italian fascists, basically, in the 20s. That's a very reductive way to put it. But the neo-futurists are a group that started in Chicago, and then there's a branch in New York and a new branch in San Francisco. And the ensembles there are actor, writer, director, performers who write plays where they are themselves being themselves doing what they're doing in the actual room. And their main show is 30 plays in 60 minutes is the idea. So all a play is a page or it's a little short thing or it's, and it can be, movement comedy drama whatever nice. it is and it's a rapid fire incredible experience as theater That's you pretty awesome. much have to go see it in person if you want to see it and it's only in those places sometimes they tour but uh look up neo-futurists in a city near you they're amazing
1: i think our friends five second films might have a lawsuit on their hands
0: <laughs> five second plays
1: <laughs> i got a final one yeah. which is this time uh recommended listening ooh, <laughs> ooh. A song that just the, by my favorite lyricist of all time that has lyrics that very much tie into it's a story song that's very much uh, similar to Wanda June, so it's a good excuse for me to mention it. Yeah. Cat Eye Willie, Come to Claim His Lover is the name of the song. Huh. The group is Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer, uh, oh. who are among my favorite artists, but I'm only recommending this one song. Brett, can we play a clip? Bonnie
2: Brown, you can run and hide, fly my honey lamb. And cry, have mercy and crawl the cane for cover man, pride. Devil won't be when come
1: that's a great clip oh what a clip that's yeah so it's a story about a dude who uh, impregnates a woman. And then she realizes he's violent and abusive, so she tries to keep his kids. So he decides to kill her and get the kid back, and
0: it's good. Whoa.
1: Classic, like hardcore Western story where everything goes to shit. Yeah.
0: And and they're a songwriting duo or something? Or is it. Dave Carter wrote all the songs,
1: and then Tracy Grammer is incredibly talented singer and fiddle player. Oh, cool! So it's folk music. It's and then she does all the violin and fiddle pieces and sings. They switch off singing. He also sings, but I'm pretty sure he wrote all the lyrics and songs on those albums.
0: Cool, and from that clip, it was so good.
1: Yeah, odds are you've never heard of them, and they're great. So listen them. Nice,
0: listen up. And then my last one is a Ray Bradbury short story. Yep, it's (gasps) me. We're doing it. Holy
1: shit! You vanquished me. (laughs) I didn't bring a Harlan Ellison story this time. Oh well, that's okay. I can't believe I didn't think to do that.
0: I didn't. I didn't mean to ace you out. Or no, nothing, you did. You, know? you won the podcast. That was it.
1: <laughs> There's I'm confetti, leaving.
0: Confetti descending from <laughs> yeah. the ceiling. It's a small room. Michael's we do melting this.
1: into a puddle of water.
0: <laughs> it's a slam dunky one, and it's called the Kilimanjaro device. It was originally written for Life magazine, and then and then published. And I sing the Body Electric, and it is about a man going back in time to Idaho to try to give Ernest Hemingway a better end to his life. And in Life Magazine's version, Ray Bradbury did a little intro to the story, and he talks about the genesis of it. And he met somebody who knew Hemingway in life when he was living in Idaho and really falling apart. And he describes him as that old man, that sad old man on the road kind of thing, and just like really heartbreaking... Mental picture of Hemingway just wandering around, wanting to die, you know? right? Yeah. And so it's a it's a story about kind of reckoning with his legacy and trying to appreciate him and and understand him and and figure out a better way to handle him. Because also, I mean, I feel like an implied related reading for this thing is reader and Hemingway, uh, sure. but also that's sort of an interesting take on him yeah. too, uh, and so, and sort of the reverse of damning the bad part of him to be like, oh, if only we could save the. The good bit, you know? Right. Or at least he, just he give a some human good being. Shit.
1: A... There's good stuff in there, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it
1: nominally, even though I in Wanda June highlights how yeah, he lived a violent life where he did he said things that seem like he promotes violence. But I mean a farewell to arms is literally about saying farewell to the need for guns and For Whom the Bell (laughs) Tolls is literally about how anytime another human being suffers, you suffer too because we're all connected. So Hemingway was not Harold Ryan, really. Right, Um, just part of him. um, yeah, 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 yeah. And to his credit, Vonnegut says like,
0: and yeah, like so. this yeah. character
1: is a blown up version of a type of man that I think is best evinced by a part of Ernest Hemingway's public right. persona. That's very far from saying I wrote this to shit on Ernest Hemingway's work <laughs> right. or something. Right, yeah. Right.
0: yeah. But those are the readings. I think we get, we're we going toward the end here. We can get into a yeah. segment called Vonnegut News.
1: And you could blast through those because you could like have Liberty Valance on the TV while you're playing a song. <laughs> yeah.
0: And flipping through the book. It's so our easiest that, one yet. Have all that playing inside a neo-futurist show. They will yeah. love it. Your kid wad- comes up with, all with a wadded up ball
1: of bread. <laughs> and everything is tied together nicely. <laughs> Merry
0: Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Um, and, uh, this, uh, Vonnegut News here, uh, it's a pretty short one, this episode, there is one story out of the great state of Illinois. Oh, we 1818 saw your founding. You're the best. Uh, it, it's a song there's a federal judge in Illinois who wrote a decision in a case about injunctions and jury trials and patent infringement and some things that I I haven't really uh, looked into closely. But the decision was heavily filled with Vonnegut references. Weird. Uh, So if you look on natlawreview.com and search Illinois Vonnegut, you will turn up this decision where... He adds an epilogue to his decision, and it says, like, life is not over, but the story is. Vonnegut, dead-eyed dick, 1982. (laughs) Still, the fear is that, like Kilgore Trout in Breakfast of Champions, we are trapped in the middle of some work of fiction. But unlike Kilgore, we are not close to the end, actually. So it goes. This isn't an actual federal judge. This is a judicial decision.
1: So the headline of this news story is Federal Judge Bored Out of Mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably. Yeah. The story calls it a Kurt Vonnegut Fuel. To pin uh, room, federal Judge
1: Left Phone Charger at Home Today. <laughs> <laughs> Needed something to do.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so that's going on in my home state. Keep it up. And uh, and then also, if you're in Los Angeles, a theater group called Sacred Fools. We've said this before, yep. but they're putting on a play version of The Sirens of Titan. It starts March 31st, runs through May 6th.
1: <gasps> we're coming up on that.
0: So yeah, we'll and, uh, Michael and there, I are going to sure. go see it yeah. and, and have a good time.
1: We got to get to a movie one. Because I, I still want to do like a how did this get made style where we like, like I, when you first said that, I was like, oh, we'll do a live episode where we talk about the whole time <laughs> we're watching it. You can't do that at a play. No, no, That's not going to work out.
0: <laughs> well, we, we sit in the back talking into a microphone very quietly about how the play is going. I don't think it'll work. Well, that is, as we're concluding here, I guess we're, we're spitballing this idea live, but as we're concluding here, our next episode is going to be about the novel Breakfast of Champions,
1: mm-hmm. uh, which one. is a
0: huge Kurt book and also was made into a movie starring Bruce Willis. Which, yeah, so famously, so I think... that might be a way to do
1: it. One of the few movies will hit that you will actually... Have seen maybe, or at least you're like, well, I know Bruce Willis. <laughs> it's not obscure. It is famous. It did famously bomb and isn't supposed to be good. I haven't yeah. seen it.
0: Yeah. Well, but, also, I've, uh, pretty studious, I've pretty studiously avoided Vonnegut movies and shows before we were making this. So sure. they're all new to me and uh, I'm excited to see it.
1: If it's bad enough, I could imagine us doing a bonus episode where we just mock Breakfast of Champions while we watch it.
0: Yeah maybe Some kind of thing.
1: But I haven't seen it so again maybe I'll watch it and I'll be like it was bad like boring but not bad enough to be funny bad, you know? <laughs> right, right. We'll see. We shall see.
0: Yeah. And we'll find that out in our next one. Uh, Breakfast of Champions from 1970. Oh, that's a real cliffhanger. That will keep him. Uh,
1: was that twelve-year-old movie bad or really bad? <laughs> when will we find out?
0: <laughs> I'm great with next. I'm a regular Shyamalan. Oh no, he's twists, right? Yeah, he's that's the opposite. I'm a regular. He leaves you with a
1: conclusive story beat that means you never have to see I'm anymore. A re- I'm a regular
0: <laughs> Charles Dickens. I sure. don't know what You're I'm doing. You're a regular Marvel post-credit. I don't sequence, know what I'm Let's doing. say that. <laughs> okay. Thank you guys for hanging out with us and enjoying the plays of Kurt Vonnegut Jim Gaffigan is funny. I agree. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.